if you can engage in the imagination, if you can create an environment where the imagination becomes the context for, for what you're doing in the classroom, then you are expanding almost infinitely what can be, you know, where you can be, when you can be, what you're doing, who you are, and what you're up to, because the imagination could take you anywhere. Welcome to Rethinking Education. Education's critical friend. Hello, and welcome to episode 10 of the Rethinking Education podcast. We made it all the way to double figures. The last episode with Kate McAllister has been going down well. Here's a message I received from a new listener yesterday. I've just listened to this in full. Wow, an inspiring and sensible conversation. Thanks so much for recording this and allowing parents a glimpse of the conversations some of you educators are having. Change is overdue. This podcast makes me feel hopeful. That's a big deal. Deborah Kidd, who some of you may know was my very first guest, an episode well worth going back and listening to in case you haven't done so already, tweeted, Some people think one day I'd really like to dot dot dot, and some people do it. Rethinking Kate's story is a fascinating one. And finally, here's a message I received from Catherine Pratt, someone I met virtually only recently through the Rethinking Education Mighty Network. Catherine has been doing some really fascinating work with something called the Soini Project down in Cornwall. And she is a fascinating example of someone who is rethinking education in a way that aligns learning with families, the environment, and engaging with the wider community. Catherine tweeted... Kate is extraordinary. This clip is so powerful standing on its own. I had clipped a part of the show where Kate outlined her philosophy of education. And then she adds in brackets, the rest of the podcast will realign your neural connections too. Close brackets. And sums up her why beautifully. These people can't all be wrong, listener. If you haven't done so already, I heartily recommend you go back and listen to Kate's episode. It really is most life-affirming. She is continuing to receive the most incredible feedback from the parents of children at her hive school. And of course, I equally recommend you go back and listen to the entire back catalogue. It's all gold, and we have some fantastic guests lined up in the weeks to come. The next episode will feature a fascinating conversation with Ross McGill, also known as Teacher Toolkit, the most followed teaching account on Twitter. I think it's got something like a quarter of a million followers, which is unbelievable. We also passed a mini milestone of our own this week, tipping over a thousand downloads. In fact, we're already up to around 1300, which is a wonderful thing after just a couple of months of being on the air. And considering that these episodes tend to be around the two to three hour mark, a quite remarkable and entirely welcome thing. I absolutely love doing this podcast. I would literally do it if nobody listened. It forces me to read fascinating books and have in-depth conversations with inspiring people. 
but it is quite time consuming. It takes about 10 hours to process a single show. And so it is really lovely to hear that these conversations are resonating with people. If you've been enjoying these podcasts, I would love to hear from you somehow. For example, you might be able to write a glowing review or give us a five-star rating on whichever of the many platforms you can access it through. You might also be able to leave a comment or share a link to the show with your social media buddies. Also, if you have any recommendations for future guests, please feel free to drop me a line. My contact details are in the show notes. You can also join the Rethinking Education Mighty Network, like Catherine did, a free online community forum that I set up about a month ago, almost on a whim really, on the night Lockdown 3 was announced. So far, around 80 people have joined this community, and it's a really global affair. There are people from about 12 different countries represented, scattered all over the planet. The idea behind this mighty network is to bring together people from all walks of life, parents and carers, teachers and school leaders, researchers and policymakers, people with kids in the school system, parents of homeschoolers or school refusers, anyone really who is interested in rethinking and reforming education at whatever level of the system they are at, whether they're inside the system or outside it, to see whether we might work together and scale up our efforts to bring about a less hair-raising, more harmonious state of world affairs. There's also a free online course, Learning to Learn at Home, which, to my delight, has been well-received among teachers as well as parents and carers. A teacher contacted me this week to say that he had used one of the tools, it's called Steps to Success, as the basis for a 30-minute school assembly, and he's also using it with his pupils, which is nice. If you're interested, you can join the community at rethinking-education.mn, that's short for Mighty Network, .co, or you can download the Mighty Networks app and search for Rethinking Education. We haven't done much with this community yet. I just want to grow it, first of all, to around two or 300 people, and then we'll have a live launch event in a few weeks and really get the ball rolling. So do come and join us. It is quite simply the loveliest bunch of people you're ever likely to find assembled on the internet. If you're a regular listener to this show, you will have noticed that I like to spend a good amount of time getting to know each guest before we get into the rethinking education part of the conversation. When I started this podcast, I wasn't sure whether this would work, especially as I always ask my guests to talk about their own childhoods and their experiences of education. But 10 episodes in, I'm really pleased that I made the decision to go down this route. In every single episode to date, the life history, significant learning part of the conversation has been absolutely fascinating. And today's episode is no exception. Tim Taylor is a writer and a freelance teacher who works to promote and develop innovative practices in primary schools. He's also the author of A Beginner's Guide to Mantle of the Expert, and he runs training events and residentials and so on for teachers seeking to develop this aspect of their practice. We'll explore Mantle of the Expert in some detail in this conversation, but in case you aren't familiar, by way of a one-line introduction, it's an approach to teaching and learning that involves engaging the children in a process of what Tim describes as imaginative inquiry. 
Working with Luke Abbott and others, Tim has helped to grow a sizable community of practice around this approach in recent years, and it's well worth a visit to the Mantle of the Expert website, which I'll link to in the show notes, and also to have a look at Tim's book, which is absolutely brilliant. Tim will probably not thank me for saying this because he's quite humble, but I honestly think that he is one of the most remarkable educators I've ever met. As I mentioned in this conversation, I've seen Tim in action when I took part in a workshop he ran at a conference. Although this was about five years ago, I can still remember so many details from that session and the strange way it made me feel. It was utterly unlike anything I had ever seen or taken part in before or since. Tim has an incredible talent for taking simple artifacts, a newspaper article or an object or a photograph, and using them to create an intimate shared space in which mystery, imagination and possibilities for learning abound. It really is quite astonishing and I think that comes across in this conversation. Tim is also widely regarded as one of the loveliest, most decent people you'll ever meet online or in real life, and particularly in the world of edu Twitter, which sometimes feels more like a school playground or perhaps even the Wild West at times than a place for professional dialogue among adults. Tim's story of his childhood and his experience of school in this episode is particularly powerful, I think. He had a very extreme experience of the transition from primary to secondary school, a transition he describes as a guillotine, which is quite a telling metaphor, I think. And it makes me wonder just how widespread is this sense among children that the move from primary to secondary school is not so much a question of transition, as it's often referred to by teachers, but as a seismic and perhaps even traumatic jolt that they never really fully recover from or get their heads around. There are strong echoes here of the conversation I had with Ian Cunningham in episodes two to four, that was a long conversation, where we talked about how secondary schools in particular are often far too large. This as always, is a fascinating conversation in which we discuss some of the ludicrous educational fads and bizarre beliefs that have gripped the teaching profession in recent years, the powerful potential of mantle of the expert, of course, and the troubling fact that if you were going to change the education system, you wouldn't want to start from here. Before we dive in, a quick comment on sound. For some reason, towards the end of our conversation, a strange intermittent clicking sound appeared. For those of you old enough to remember Flipper the Dolphin, it sounds a bit like Flipper trying to draw our attention to a tourist in distress or an imminent art heist, perhaps. Like the true professional that he is, Tim did not let Flipper distract him from talking to me about education. If you too hear this pesky crime-solving dolphin piping up at any point, do not adjust your settings, just ignore him and he'll soon go away. Okay, that's quite enough of that. On with the show. Tim Taylor, welcome to the Rethinking Education podcast. Oh, thank you. Thanks for thanks for uh, inviting me on. I'm, I'm very uh, um, excited. I think to be talking to you this morning. Yeah. I think it would. I think it was maybe 20, 
2013 when I first came across you um, and we met if you remember in, in the chat comments in the comment section on the Guardian I was I'd written one of those secret teacher columns I think that it's okay for me to unmask <laughs> so seven years down the line not that anyone cared even at the time um, I'd written a piece about how to we need to free education from political control or something and there was a healthy you know robust um, you know dialogue let's say in the comments section and a range of views were expressed um, and you uh, we, you stuck at it for quite a good time and I did as well and it was clear that we had some sort of quite similar ideas about things um, and at that time I don't think I was even on Twitter I think that you probably introduced me to Twitter and it was you who encouraged me to start blogging and to sort of to even to just engage in this world of of edu Twitter which I know that you've been very immersed in um, from that time, what are your memories of, of your sort of your early experiences of engaging with this world? Yeah, so I, I had a pretty similar path. So I, I suppose I was only a, a couple of steps ahead of you. So I, I was on. Uh, well, I, I started looking at the comments section underneath the articles that were happening in, in the Guardian. And as you say, it was a pretty robust and interesting conversation that was going on and you know a number of very interesting people also the format allowed you to say quite a lot so it was a sort of a semi-blogging type thing for some people and I and I, and I kind of felt that I was it, it, it was giving me the opportunity to broaden my horizons and talk to people that I, that I you know that weren't in my social kind of group or circle and then uh, actually I was introduced to Twitter by um, uh, Hugh Roberts and uh, uh, and a bunch of other people who said, "Look, you should, you should, if you like that sort of thing, you should go on Twitter." So I, I think I'd only been on Twitter maybe a few weeks, and then we were we were chatting quite regularly on the Guardian. And I think I said, "Oh, look, you should get over there. Yeah, this is is another another arena for this kind of stuff. Uh, a little bit more sort of knockabout because obviously back then, particularly Twitter had you know very short um, amount of characters, but but it." But it, it kind of happened fast. I think that that was that was the thing that it was, you know, Twitter, as we know, you kind of get into these conversations pretty quickly and things are going backwards and forwards. Whereas kind of the Guardian comments thing was kind of long form, wouldn't it? You'd write something and then you'd wait half a day or a day for someone <laughs> to reply. Or like a series of correspondence. Yes. <clears throat> yeah. Um, I mean, it has been an incredible tool, hasn't it? It really has. The, the, the extent of sort of sharing of practice and it, it just feels like there's been this very sort of um accelerated period of, of of like um of growth in the profession and it really feels like the profession is sort of starting to find its feet to become much more sort of research engaged much more willing to engage with ideas from the other side of the aisle as it were um, you know, and and it allowed teachers, classroom teachers, and education researchers to sort of to come face to face for the first time. Because previously, you know, teachers, I mean, didn't even go to conferences, did they? Not really much of a thing apart from union stuff. And education researchers go to things like Bira, which costs like two hundred quid to go to. But this format allowed teachers and education researchers to start talking to each other, and it feels like there was this sort of Fascinating. I sometimes use an image when I'm when I'm talking about this, and it's like these two mountaineers on two opposing sort of rock faces, and both of them have got a rope dangling down, and it sort of felt like that was what happened. But it almost felt like sort of teachers were assuming that education researchers were doing things that were sort of somehow relevant to classroom practice, 
and vice versa. I assume at least that education researchers were assuming that teachers were to at least to some extent reading and digesting and acting on you know research findings. And, it, and the gap is really, really considerable. Donald McIntyre wrote about it really well, where he sort of said that it's just like the kinds of knowledge that researchers are producing is just of a very different nature to what teachers need to know to teach their tricky year six group on a, on a Tuesday morning. Um, and it felt like the other one thought that the other had the rope and then we sort of had this weird facing off and now there's been this fascinating sort of merging of these two worlds um, and we can see this happening through movements like research ed and you know through teach meets and these sort of grassroots things but I think largely through you know online engagement um, and it's and also you know schools you know have, have engaged with with universities uh, university-based researchers for a long time and that's work that i'm currently involved in but that's generally been in quite sort of small pockets and it feels like it's really gone sort of i don't know whether you'd call it system level yet but it's certainly ramped up considerably yeah i i think the because i was involved in research and education in the late 90s and early 2000s and the labor government funded quite a lot of things called best practice research so you could get a scholarship quite easily and that um, actually had a quite a significant um, effect on my career because it allowed me to pay for, for, for somebody called Luke Abbott to come and work with me in my classroom and and, uh, and other people that I was working with and I, I was interested in that world and and we also I also sort of traveled around quite a bit went to different universities went up to Newcastle and there was a conference in the midlands and other places and and i had the i had the the beer journal i was subscribed to that and that arrived at our school and i would read it and i i i felt that the, the, there was a, an attempt at that time to try and join those two worlds together it never i think it, it never really kind of worked because they always felt like there was a there was a gatekeepers there were the people who were deciding what got published and you know what kind of a, was allowed to be in the journals, and and you know what kind of things made it, and what kinds of things were dismissed. And um, I think the big the big shift for us as a profession in terms of engaging with that world was the development of blogging, where there's no gatekeepers in blogging. You you, you can just write, and you can, there's nobody stopping you or checking it or disapproving or saying, oh, that's not how you do it. You just kind of do it. And I think it allowed an awful lot of it's particularly I don't think I don't see quite the same number, the same amount of energy in blogging as there was five or six years ago. There was an enormous I mean, sometimes you get 100 blogs a week, you know, Saturday morning, there'd be 30 or 40 blogs <laughs> published, yeah. that, you know, promoted on Twitter. There definitely seem to be fewer comments on blogs as well. There used to be raging arguments in the comment section on blogs, and I don't see that happening so much anymore. No. No, absolutely. And it, it, I think, I mean, I kind of worked my head through this and thought to myself, well, why, why is that? Why might that be? And I think there's been a little bit of a conversation about it on Twitter. And my, my thought is that an awful lot of the things that were pressing on the profession, things that were things that, that, that weren't examined and were, were, were brought to classes, things like teacher talk, Teacher talk was something that, that sort of, for some reason or other, and I think you, you talked a bit about this in your book, is that teacher talk became a bad thing. You know, we, we, we got shown sort of, um, I don't know, data that said that teachers talked for 80% of the time in a class. And, 
And we all of us nodded and went, oh, yeah, that's a bad thing. We've got to stop doing teacher talk. And I think quite a lot of us actually sat there and thought, oh, I don't know, I don't know if, that's, if that's right. Is it just a bad thing? Have we just got to stop doing it so much? And it needed examining. And I think there was a lot of those kinds of things, particularly in the early days. I'm saying the early days, what we're talking about six, seven years ago in blogging, where a lot of those kinds of ideas needed talking about and looking at more closely. And I wonder if a lot of those those things, those things that were pressing on, on us as a profession at that time, are no longer so um, urgent. Yes, yeah, maybe. And we have worked through, you know, in all of those raging conversations, people have worked through a lot of the ideas that they were having. It's a bit like, you know, that, that theory of sort of how groups form and there's like the storm, form, norm. Have you come across this? So when a, when a group gets together, there's a period of storm. So there's like the feathers are flying and people are sort of trying to establish where they are in the sort of hierarchy or within the whole sort of ecosystem. And then there's a period of norming where people start to find their feet and then there's like reform and there's, a, there's this whole sort of theory of it. Um, and it feels like like um, edu Twitter was in a sort of micro storm and it feels like Twitter more widely and the sort of the culture wars, if you like, that have sort of happened partly at least as a consequence of the internet and social media is like this absolutely raging torrential storm that, that is potentially unending. <laughs> it's hard to see how that's going to reach the level of norm. Goodness knows, I, I hope that it will. But anyway, um, so so there, there does seem to be maybe that there was a storm element of the edgy Twitter thing, and then people have sort of decided largely sort of where they sit um, in ter terms of you know traditional practice versus progressive ideas and so on. And maybe sort of people have, have become a little bit less interested in exploring them for themselves because they've sort of already examined that. Um, and just quickly on the teacher talk thing, I mean, I've, I've thought about that a lot as well. And um, it's one of those things that's just not a, not a straightforward thing, is it? Like, there's, it, you can't just say teachers should not talk for X amount of minutes, which is what people were saying. But I can sort of understand where it came from, because I can remember, you know, just as my own classroom practice, like, I, I know like I've felt it many times the moment when I lose a class because I've been talking too long and they just glaze over and one of them just looks out the window and you can just get a sense. You're just like, okay, I've lost them here. I need to, I need to shut up and I need to get them doing something. And, you know, um, and I think that probably people who've observed teachers um, have seen that for a long time. And there's a, there's a, there's a tendency to sort of, we talk to control sometimes, you know, like when, when you're talking, like you're in control of the situation, regardless of how well that, that bit of teacher talk is going. So I can sort of understand why people were criticizing teacher talk, but just to suddenly say, oh yeah, the kids were on the carpet for more than 10 minutes, therefore this was a, an unsatisfactory lesson, was where it became ridiculous. You know, there was a, there's a complicated conversation to be had about teacher talk, um, and that's not what was happening. No, and it's, it's um, the point you're making there is that teaching is situated. It's in it's in in a classroom with a thirty other human beings. It's not you can't apply a formula to it. Uh, the the first time that that, that I, I came aware of this was in primary, which is where I spent almost all my career. We we in the in the sort of late nineties, the literacy hour turned up, and there were you know literally people sitting. I'm saying people, you know, Ofsted, sitting in the classroom with a stopwatch, 
timing the amount of time that you're on the carpet for and you know how long you're talking for and and as a school as a school we we, we were at the same time we were we were working on philosophy with children and um um forest schools and, and other stuff and we were like looking at this and going this is madness what this is a formula that's been applied by people who've never even visited our school let alone sat in a classroom with the children that we're working with it's deprofessionalizing de us. It's taking away from us our judgment as teachers and our sense of what it is to be able to adapt in the classroom to what's needed in the room. Like, like you're saying you're talking for too long because you notice that, that, that some of the children start becoming disengaged. Now, as a teacher, you know that's a, that's a, a clear sign that you've got to change things up. It's not like after 10 minutes or 11 minutes or five minutes. <laughs> I mean, we were told such silly things like young children can only be on the class on the carpet or can only concentrate for five minutes plus their age. So apparently, <laughs> apparently like a, a six year old can only be co can only concentrate for 11 minutes. <laughs> where, the, where the hell did that come from? It was such a, and it, it was like, I, I remember being told that several times at, at, at you know, various things that I attended, because at, at one point I used, to, I used to go all these things at one point, because I was really interested in, in in new ideas and what was going on. I was still a young teacher and, or a new teacher and finding things out. And I remember sitting there looking and going, that's, that's bullshit. That's just <laughs> not true. I, I see that every day that that's not true where has that come from yeah and i think i think that that kind of thing needed examining and i think it's now you you can't get away with stuff like that anymore no people in question ask questions i mean it's a very simple equation as well isn't it you think it would be something like your age plus five minutes divided by your socioeconomic status <laughs> times yeah, by but... your shoe size or something <laughs> Maybe a bit closer the to the water tr you've drunk that morning, or indeed, you know. <laughs> yeah, the water is all important water. Yeah, so so I mean, you're talking about reprofessionalizing the like teaching there, and I think that that is what's happening. It's like the, the short version of this conversation that we're having. I think that through all of this this engagement with research and tweeting and blogging and so on, and I know that you know it's still a minority of teachers who are engaged in this online world, which is something to remember sometimes. But it does feel like the, the like the profession is becoming more sure-footed, more confident. And to go back to you know the, the that original secret teacher article, this idea that we need to free education from political and endless political tinkering, I think that that's still a valid point. But at the time, people were saying, yeah, but you know we're telling kids to drink water because you need to press it into the top of their mouths because then it'll be absorbed into their brain, and we're pressing our brain gym buttons and we're doing all this weird stuff. And clearly, teaching doesn't have its house in order. So we're not in a position yet where the, where the, we could make a strong case to the government and say, actually, we know what we're talking about here. Maybe you need to devolve this to a select committee or something and stop with the sort of electoral cycle, political football of, of educational ideas, um, which um, feels to me to be what's happening, which is, you know, all to the good, obviously. Um, just so, so just to pick something up, you mentioned Luke Abbott there, um, and I, I know we're going to talk about Mantle of the Expert in a while well, because you're probably like most known for your work in Mantle of the Expert. So just as a sort of just as a way to to foreshadow it, if you like, for a while I don't know if it's still your Twitter bio, but for a while your Twitter bio said something like, um, "The greatest resource we have in the classroom is the children's imagination." 
um, which I remember thinking, oh, I've not really, because I'm a secondary school teacher and a science teacher, and there's not a whole lot of scope, there's a lot of content to cover. And I remember sort of thinking, I don't really know what that means. So uh, could you just shed some light on what you mean by that? What's the, why is it the greatest resource? Well, the, the, the reason is that, for me anyway, is that if, you're, if you can engage in the imagination, if you can create an environment where the imagination becomes the context for, for what you're doing in the classroom, then you are expanding almost infinitely what can be, you know, where you can be, when you can be, what you're doing, who you are, and what you're up to, because the imagination could take you anywhere. And what I, in the, in the sort of the time that I was a teacher, when I was thinking about these things very, um, very much in terms of my practice, was that I was finding that when I was working with children, if we, if we engaged in story worlds, if we started to think about what we were doing inside a story, this is where Manta the Expert comes in, in terms of the, the practice of that, then the, 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 the kinds of resources you need become very, very simple. You just need bits of paper, you need a place to be, you might need some tape to, to put on the carpet, because most of what's going on, I'll, I'll explain the tape thing. So <laughs> if you want to be in, a, in an Egyptian tomb, for example, so if you, if you want to explore ancient Egypt with the kids, so you're, you're engaged in that kind of thing, and you think to yourself, right, so what about if we were a bunch of people coming into a, to an Egyptian tomb, opening up like Howard Carter for the first time? I mean, what, what would that be like, do you suppose? Now, of course, that's an imaginative question because the children have never been in that position. And, you know, I, imagine, I can't imagine any of them, and certainly the children I was working with in, in the late 90s, even been to Egypt or thought about Egypt. Um, so how can you summon that place up? How can you kind of imagine yourself being there? And all you need is a piece of sort of masking tape, a roll of masking tape, and just mark it out on the floor and then say to them, okay, let's, let's just imagine ourselves stepping into that place and being these people for the first time. What do you suppose we might find there? What would we see? Now, of course, your imagination takes you there, just like, a, like you would if you were watching a film or you know, reading a book or being in the theatre, you, your imagination takes you there. And this is what I saw with the children, was that they were, they were, you could do this, all kids could do this, and they were there in, the, in that place. And the point of it is you go, I'll tell you what, why don't we just stop our story for a minute and just find out more about what it was like for Howard Carter. Let's have a look at some photographs of what you found. Let's, 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 let's have a look at the topic books and, and see what, what, what kinds of artefacts were in there. Why don't you grab a piece of paper and draw them and then we'll come back to our story and then we'll, we'll put them into the tomb, but not as the archaeologists, but as the people who were attending the ceremony of Tutankhamun at the time. So we're going to take ourselves back 5,000 years and imagine what that was like. We're going to do that. Now, that's, that, that work that's involved in that is connecting up all the curriculum. And it's happening inside, largely inside our imagination. And that was that was the realization for me was that you don't really need 
a huge amount of resources. You don't need lots and lots of expensive things and complicated kind of apparatus. You could do almost all of it in your head with your imagination. And that's a power that we all have. Okay. Yeah, thank you. I can see that. So in a sense, like the, the children's imagination acts as a kind of multiplier effect. So all you need is, like you say, a few sheets of paper or some photographs or a bit of tape on the floor. And through, the, through that, um, you create a world and the children sort of buy into it. They suspend their disbelief. They buy into it. And through that, you create a sort of like a, like a, a momentum or a sort of like a narrative with which you can then develop, for example, you know, you, ideas about history or ideas about spelling and grammar or whatever it is that needs to happen within within the context of the curriculum is that is that sort of what you're saying right so if you if you think about it in terms of the curriculum so obviously you can see there's lots of history in it because the people that are involved in creating this imaginary story which is the children are they need to know a lot about history so what are the what are the ways that they can find out about history? Well, they can look at books, they can look at photographs, they could maybe watch a, a documentary. But there's also me. I know a lot about history, so I can tell them a lot. And of course, because they're interested in it and they're engaged in it, then they want to know. You know, they're asking questions and they get more and more excited and interested in it, like you do when you get when you see children doing that. Now, as a teacher, of course, I'm 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 keeping an eye on all the other things that. I'll, that, that you know, I want the children to learn. So they let's say they're seven, seven or eight, and they're, they're becoming more competent writers. They're they're starting to write longer things. So I, I look at the kinds of text types that might be that I might want to teach them about and develop. And I see on that list there's something about um, like a first person perspective account of of this event. And I think to myself, well, what 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 writing could there be in that context? Well, now I've got a whole load of, of options here. I've got the option of it could be an account written by, by one of the archaeologists. You know, we, 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 we went down the dark corridor and we saw above us the, the, the stars that were, that were painted into the ceiling and there the closed door sealed shut. You know, that's a first-person perspective of the archaeologists. Or... It could be the first-person perspective of somebody who was watching this. I saw the archaeologists disappear into the mountain and come back three hours later, their eyes full of joy. Now, that's another perspective. Or we could go back to the time of the Egyptians. So I carried in my box and laid it on the tomb and said goodbye to my son. I touched the stone, the cold, hard stone that was as cold as his skin. You know, that's a first-person perspective from somebody who was there at the event at the time. So you can see I've got all these options to me because we've created this context. Now, for the children, of course, they're not thinking about that at all. What they're thinking about is the story. So if I say to them, Do you know, I wonder if, um, if somebody who was there at the time wrote down what they experienced. Perhaps they were writing to a relative, somebody who wasn't there. Or perhaps they were keeping an account that was in a book that's long gone now, turned to dust. I wonder what that would sound like. The kids go, yeah, I'll write that. That sounds interesting. And, you, and you're not fishing around trying to find activities. This was, this was the thing that, as a, as a teacher, when I first started teaching, frustrated me was that 
I had all these things that I needed to teach, and then I had to create activities. And then I had to get the children interested in the activities. And most of the time, they weren't really interested in it because they just felt like, I suppose for them, they just felt like, oh, we're just doing this because that's what you do when you're at school. There's not a kind of a, a purpose to it. I'm not, I'm, I, as, a, as, a, as a student, I'm not invested in this. It doesn't concern me. I just I'm doing it. I mean, I, I'm sure you can remember. I can remember doing lots of stuff at school that just felt like practicing for something that I probably was never going to do. I mean, I can remember putting my hand up in a math class. We were te- teacher was teaching us algebra. And I, and I put my, t- my hand up and I said, I can't see myself doing this. He went, what do you mean? I said, I just can't see myself using this. I, what, what is it? What, why are we doing it? And, and it, I don't think anybody ever asked him. And I don't blame him. I just think that that's an awful lot of what we do at school is we do stuff. But Dorothy Heathcote, who's a great hero of mine, said that, um, that, that, that school, if you're not careful, school could turn into a waiting room, a place where you're waiting for something to happen. And that you're, you're, you know, the students are kind of there, they're kind of practicing for something that used to be, might be useful for them one day, but not today. There isn't a reason for it to do it today. It's like, if you best thing, like if you talk to seven year olds, they say, why are we doing this? You go, if the best answer you've got is, it'll, you'll, well, you, you, it'll be about, it'll pass exams and then you'll get a better job. Well, for a seven year old, that sounds like an awful long time away. Yeah. You know, it's like, okay all right well i'll work hard when i'm 15 or something catch up (laughs) yeah yeah absolutely and i think that that is what kids think often um i mean i'm I'm really interested in mantle of the expert and i'm coming at it from a from a position of a complete beginner really um but i've seen it i've seen you in action i saw you run a session once in northern rocks and that was with uh with adults um, but I remember thinking of it as a, almost like a kind of strange alchemy that you create this sort of environment in which possibilities abound. And in my conversation with Debbie Kidd, you mentioned Dorothy Heathcote there, and she she talked about how Heathcote used to use the metaphor of a crucible that children are like a crucible, and that you sort of stir the pot, and something sort of wonderful emerges if you if you allow the space in which for this work to happen. So I know that we're going to get into um, Mansell, the expert, a little bit more. But first of all, I want to sort of take you back. It's one of the things that I sometimes find frustrating when I listen to podcasts is that people often ask the guest, can you give me a positive history of your life up to this point? And, And it's like two minutes sort of answer. And I always think that's like the most interesting bit of the story. Like, why is it that you became the mantle of the expert guy, right? <laughs> and so I'm really interested. And why did I become the person that I am? Because, you know, we, we all approach education from very different perspectives, with different life experiences, with different moments of significant learning that have shaped us as people. And so that's why we have seen so much conflict, I think, on Twitter, because we're sort of... Um, we're, we're arguing in the minutiae and we're not really taking account of the wider context of one another's lives. And, you know, somebody who, you know, you feel like you're the mortal enemy of, who you disagree with and you bang heads against them constantly, if you, you know, take the time to get to know them and understand who they, you know, who they are and why they are the way that they are and what it is that they're trying to achieve, 
you can often find immense areas of common ground, you know. And so I'm interested to explore life histories. So let's go back to, to your childhood. Can you tell me a little bit about your your experience of of childhood, your experience of school? Let's just start with that. Okay. So my childhood divides really quite neatly or <laughs> almost you know, talking about the crucible it's like a guillotine that kind of chops it in half between when i was at primary and when i was at secondary when I, I, my primary education was in a tiny school in the fens a place called lakes end it's one street you can have a look at it on google earth there's you know i don't know i don't think there's more than 70 people lived there in the 1970s and our school was had 15 children in it from reception to year six and three of them were me, my brother, and my sister. Wow. And, I, and I'm five years older than my my sister and six years older than my brother. And my dad was was our teacher. And we lived in the schoolhouse, which was connected to the to the building. So you could imagine it was a very, very kind of um, isolated kind of childhood. And I had very very few people that I was the same age of and had anything in common with. So I very uh, instinctively, I think, I don't, I don't think it was, it was never a conscious choice. You didn't make a conscious choice at that age. It was just a, an instinct thing that I would go off in my imagination. I would, I would spend a huge amount of my time inside my head, imagining myself you know, in a story that would make up for myself, doing all kinds of things. And I mean, I don't know from an adult perspective, perhaps I was an odd child, you know, perhaps I was, but I don't think, I don't think my parents ever considered me odd. I would just kind of, I don't even think I would consider me odd if I saw myself now, because it's, it's all going on up in my head. And I would, I would spend a lot of time out, out in the fields around the, where I lived or you know, in a dike somewhere, you know, living adventures and 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 playing games in my head, and I le I learned to read. It took me a little while to learn to read, but I learned to read early. And once I learned to read, I just read everything. So pretty quickly, I read everything that was in the school, really. And there was a bunch of books that I loved. Um, and then there was a, a a library van that used to come round once every. Don't know what it's a once a term, maybe three times a year, something like that. And I remember sitting in this library van for those people who who had a like. Do you ever have a library van? Did you ever go in the library yeah, I've van? Yeah, see, I've seen them. I've seen them. Just wonderful, wonderful things. And, and it had a carpet in it, a little step, and rows of books, and and it would pull up. You know, and we'd be looking forward to it for like weeks ahead you know i'd have to say the library man's come up like, oh. wow you know, and, and then it would pull up outside the school and i can remember there was a, a metal sort of um uh, railings and go through the gate and then in, into the into the thing and sit on the carpet on this little step and just read these books just sitting there and i was you could choose 15 i think it was 15 and that was it and it was so cruel because they were like i just you know you wanted to Take all of them. It just like can I have all of it. You get a fifteen, and it take me like oh, two hours to choose my fifteen books, and we would sort of walk out, and and then they 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 had to for the last few months. You know, you you sort of read them over and over and over again. Yeah. And I can remember one book 
that really um, became important to me and, and stuck in my head. And it was a book about um, Nelson, Horatio Nelson, and I think it might have been a Ladybird book, but that, that, that might be just a, a memory that I've sort of attached myself. But it, I remember it was full of pictures, and that these pictures were really evocative. They really did something in my head in terms of me wanting to be in that place. So I think I spent a lot of time looking at these pictures and then living them. You know, I'd go out and shoot French soldiers out of um, you know, <laughs> masks and, and I'd be alongside Nelson who'd be there with his eye and his, you know, one eye and his, and his one hand. And, 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 I, I, and history became really important to me. I, I just started wanting to find out more and more about history. So that was my early years. That was my primary. And then when I was 11, we moved house. We moved to Kings Lynn. My dad got a job in a primary school just outside Kings Lynn. And at that time, just before we moved, they took us in, or my dad took us into the hall. It was me and like one other, one other boy, I think. And we sat there and did this paper. I mean, neither of us knew what this paper was, but it turned out to be 11 plus. And, and I failed it. Um, I don't know whether that was inevitable or, or what, but it certainly, at the time, I had no idea what it was. So it meant when I went to King's Lynn at 11, I went to the secondary modern. I didn't go to the grammar school. And the secondary modern had 2,000 children. Wow. And I was scared, absolutely scared stiff. It was a dangerous place. It felt dangerous. And I was completely unequipped for dealing with that kind of environment. And... It felt to me completely alien, and uh, and really had a profound effect on on me in terms of my experiences of education and what education what education might be like and how bad it could be when it goes really bad. Yeah, I can see what you mean about the guillotine. That's an incredible. Um leap from you know being in a hamlet of like 15 kids from from reception to year six so there's probably what two in each year group or something to being one of two thousand so this is a 1970s secondary modern can you just paint a picture of what this school was like <laughs> um oh, yeah that's a that's a well big I suppose it's. I mean, that's a that's a that's a rubbish answer to that question, isn't it? But it was milling with people all the time. One of my abiding memories is people just milling, like um, I don't know, just hordes going through these these spaces. And there were two or three pinch points that between the different buildings, there was sort of, the school was divided up into what was originally a girls' school and a boys' school, and then there was this kind of new block. And between these 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 different buildings were these pinch spots, these sort of corridors and doorways. And my abiding memory, particularly in it when I first went there, was just how these people would just suddenly all converge into these really tight spots and how crushing it was, you know, people just getting crushed into these tight spaces. And that's how Gaywood Park felt to me. It felt like a like a a pressure cooker, a place where you were sort of 
pushed into and constrained and you had no sort of choice about and the the one of the first things that happened to us that was that we were brought into the school on the first morning 350 children into a hall and we were sat there and then on the on the the stage it was a, a lectern behind this on the standing at this lectern was this head of year, I suppose, who just read our names out. And then we were, we were, you know, when you were taken out into a, into a class and there were 14 classes. So, you know, you sort of sat there, I sat there for like two hours waiting for my name to be read out. And then you went out and just at that time, I, as a child, I had no idea what it meant to go <laughs> into a class. You know, what would that mean? What was going to happen when I got to the classroom? What was going to happen to me? And um, it, it was so um, I was so at sea, so out of my depth, and so um, worried all the time about what was going to happen to me that I I just kind of uh, I was I was thinking about this because I knew that you were going to ask me this question. I, I was thinking, do you know, I never went to the toilet in five years. I was at that school. I never never went to the toilet. Wow. I'd, I would I would before I went to school, I'd be you know not drinking or, 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 you know, just make sure that I didn't have anything in me that needed to come out. And then I wouldn't drink at school. Uh, I must have been so dehydrated <laughs> because, <laughs> because it was ter- going to the toilets was terrifying. Yeah. I remember that I did, I did go to the toilets, but there was always kids smoking in there and they would, yeah, they would, you know, have a go at you or they'd just take the piss out of you or just, you know, whatever. Yeah. It was, it was a scary place to go to the toilet as, at school. Um, and so when we, we talked about this yesterday, you sort of said that it just felt, it obviously you described it as being huge, very busy, and it, that it was sort of out of control and that it felt quite violent. And you also talked about dangerous teachers as well as dangerous students. Right. So the, the, the environment was, the, was chaotic in the sense that there didn't seem to be very much control over what was happening. So it was a, it was a kind of a... Um, a place where you, you you were worried at any point that something could happen to you, and this was the, the students. A lot of the children were like this, but there were teachers as well. Um, so there were teachers that would throw board rubbers at students. Uh, I was caned. Um, there was uh, sarcasm was used quite a lot. So it was it was a sort of place where you you felt that you were under under threat the whole time and that fear um got into you you know it it it, it made you hide and and well, i can remember you know keeping myself away as much as i could quiet you know being quiet and that, that i would i think i would often retreat into my imagination again you know it was the, the place where you sort of go to that place where you sort of feel safe and you just kind of just spend a lot of time in your imagination. And I, you know, I felt isolated and I'm sure that an awful lot of other children did. You know, I, I, I don't, ha- I never had that conversation with anybody who was there at the time, but I imagine that that was a, a common feeling amongst children who were there, that they would find their own form of escape. Another thing I did was I, I'd do a lot of long distance running because it meant I could go and, and I got good at it. So I could 
you know, that was a kind of an escape where I could go and run around the track for an hour or something, and then nobody would bother me, and I'd just kind of do that. Um, mm, which so, must, have, must have added to the problems with dehydration. <laughs> <laughs> it probably did. <laughs> Again, it's like you think about it, how you just can't even imagine it. You know, and I never had a shower. I never, never went in the showers. Because it was again, it was a dangerous place. You just so I must have smelled awful as well as dehydrated. <laughs> Probably helped to keep people to keep people at a well, distance. Well, I would imagine, but it was it was such a, a formative thing for me because it it was always the thing that, that that as a teacher, when I became a teacher, I remembered that that time. I remembered what was um, awful about it. And it became the a sort of touchstone in terms of I don't ever want to be like that. I never want to. I never want to be the kind of teacher that makes um, children feel um, fearful or upset, or because it, it it's so easy to do that as an adult. And, and, and you know, sometimes you do it, and you, if I mean, I you know feel bad about it, and you think, oh, yeah, you see, but you have to be. You know, you can't. You have to forgive yourself when you make mistakes. But on the other hand, the teachers that I had at, at, at secondary, a large number of them, I felt, I think they felt themselves at war with us, and that was a maybe that was a defensive thing for them as well. Yeah, yeah, it can't have been an easy time. So, so, so having been through this sort of sorting hat experience of like the 11 plus whether you're aware of it or not and then there's this there's this second sort of sorting hat process where they filter you out in the yeah in the start of year seven i presume into all these different groups um and uh, you spoke yesterday about how the sort of like the message the, the the sort of the message of that school was like that, that you are somehow failures that this is a place yeah. for failed kids and there are even degrees of failure within this environment and you also said that when you left school you sort of felt like you were not able to do academic stuff that you felt like you were um you know not not fit for that world right so i remember one one day being in an english class and we had an english teacher who we could see the grammar school across the the field that was the thing there's a this um, Edward the Eighth or Edward the Seventh kind of grammar school building, and this English teacher, I can remember, you know, this thing stayed with you, looking out across the field, and he said, "Oh, a big sigh." So I should be teaching over there. Oh. And he turned around and he looked at us and he went, "Instead, I'm working with you lot." Wow. You know, that's like that must be what forty years ago now, maybe longer, and and it, and that was the message. The message was, you, you know, they're the clever kids. You're the you're the thickies. You're the ones who, you know. Do you know that that, uh, that I told you there were 357 kids in the, in the in that first day. I went in after Easter on my last year at school, the, the the term when we did exams, and there were less than 140 left. All of the other children that were in my year had left school by that time. Without without even sitting an exam, they went in. You know, they went off and got jobs or did other things. I don't know. I don't know what happened to them. Like a industrial scale voluntary off rolling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I know. I 
don't know whether that was normal or what it was, but it, but it, but it was. I remember it just, just being so shocked that coming in, coming in after Easter, and there've been so few of us, and um, and I left school with a certain belief that I wasn't clever, that I didn't, I wasn't academic, that I wasn't somebody who could enter into that world or do any of those things. That's that's what school taught me, um, and. That if I did, if I tried, that I'd fail. So it wasn't really worth trying. Yes, it's so mad how many cases there are of people. You know, in my interview with Ian Cunningham, he was, he's in his seventies now. He's saying that he talks to people of his age who, you know, have led really successful lives and they still feel stupid because they failed their eleven plus. I can remember Jack D talking about something similar when he was on Desert Island Discs and he was once called an idiot or stupid or something in front of the whole like school by the head teacher and he still believes it and he's like you know written successful sitcoms and earned loads of money as a stand-up comedian and written novels and what have you and he still feels that like in, in his core he still believes that that head teacher was right Um, it's just incredible the the power that the the branding children as failures has for the rest of their lives um, and it just goes against everything that we know about child development you know like that people develop in different ways at different times and um, there are so many examples of people who've been told that they won't amount to anything um, and for some people that serves as a catalyst and they think right i'll bloody prove you wrong and for other people they just internalize it and they go yeah you're right that's me so so okay so you had this bruising um experience um secondary school what what happened next well next next i was five years on the dole this is early 80s uh i, I came out of school in 1980 uh, 1981 and uh, i spent five years um on the dole and drifting really uh, ended up in london for a bit um and in a in a squat in um, in Norwich, very quite a famous squat called Argyle Street, which people will look up on the internet, which was uh, like a street of squatters. All right, it's quite exciting, also quite dangerous. Um, <laughs> and 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 just lost my way. Um, didn't really know what I was doing. I had no kind of path. Um, I can remember my dad. I went to stay for a weekend with my dad, and he drove me back to the Argyle Street and we sat in the car together and he looked around and he went, oh, Tim, you know, you can come home anytime you want. <laughs> I think you must have been really worried. Yeah, about I it. bet. It's kind of said, well, you know, I don't think I'll be living here for much longer. I'm sure, you know, I'll work a way out of this. Um, and, then, and then I, I don't know quite how it happened, but I just started thinking to myself, look, this isn't, you know, what was I, 20, maybe 19, 20, something like that. And I just think to myself, this is, this is not how I want to go. This isn't, this isn't really the story that I see my life becoming. You know, there are a lot of people on that street who done far too many things that they shouldn't do to themselves and, you know, a bit of a wreck, really. And I didn't, I didn't want to become that. And, um, and I started spending more and more time in the library and going back to sort of looking at history books, really, and I remember um, reading a lot of these books again and, and going with, finding out other things about history and other stuff. And I thought, oh, I think I might go and study a course 
at the college. So I enrolled at the college in, in Norwich and did, the, did a couple of A-levels and managed to get myself into the university. And that's where I, I studied history and, and philosophy. And it wasn't really until I got to university and I started um, being in classes with other people and and realising, actually, I'm not out of my depth here. You know, I actually can sort of hold my own and, and these things are not um, beyond me. And I can I can write a decent essay and I can, you know, and, and I was interested in ideas. Ideas were really something that, that, that really became important to me and, and, and as all the way through my teaching. And so philosophy was, was something that I really um, spent an awful lot of time reading and thinking about. So it was it was at that kind of point, really, that I started to realise perhaps I wasn't as stupid as I'd been led to believe. Uh, yeah. And that was, that was, that was sort of my way out, really. Yeah, so it's like you retreated to what you knew from your, from your experience at primary yeah. school, which was like the library is a place where I feel safe and where, where I'm right. interested in stuff. Um, and it seems like that was the, the place that was able to sort of act as a mechanism in some way to get you on a different, on a different path. Um, and so you were talking about philosophy there and, and, and the nature of philosophy is that it's about inquiry, isn't it? It's about asking questions, it's about not accepting things, identifying assumptions and so on. Um, and I know that that became um, very sort of central to your work as a teacher quite early on as well. So talk me through that and then let's, let's talk about, so you met Luke Abbott quite early on in your teaching career, in your first term, was it? Right, yeah. So, so something really remarkable happened uh, and I just absolutely stroke of luck. Two things really. One was that the first school that I got a job in in Norwich, because I, I did my PGC in Norwich, was working in a, doing my last teaching practice and got a job in um, Tuxwood and the head teacher there was somebody called Sue Eagle and it was just an absolute stroke of luck it was the first job I applied for had the interview got the job didn't know anything about Sue started working in September and Sue was a new head and she turned out to be somebody who was really really interested in philosophy for children and had seen uh, as well as seeing Luke Abbott at a conference and she got Luke to come in and work in the school in the very first term I was there. And, and it, you know, I think back and I think that was a million to one chance. I could, that, you know, I could have been working anywhere, never come across these ideas. And I came across them as, a, as an NQT in my first term. So Luke came in and worked with, um, with my class. And I'd, I'd been teaching them for a few weeks and they were hard work. They were year two. So seven six or seven year olds and they were really difficult to engage well they were for me anyway and luke came in sat with them in the hall and started talking to them about this village that the, where the houses had disappeared into this, this giant hole and they needed rescuing and uh, with the with the children this is a story he told them this is a story he said would you be interested in being the people doing the rescuing and my class went yeah we'll have some of that and then for the next hour, there he was, completely immersed in this story. I was, I was somebody who needed rescuing. I this, you know, I'd, you could see this giant hole and this big lump of wood had, was crossed my legs, and I can remember all, all kneeling on the floor, 
few feet away from me, controlling these imaginary kind of um, robots that were coming to sort of rescue me and looking at them and thinking, I've got to learn how to do this. I've got to learn how to to do what this bloke Luke's doing because this is what I want to do as a teacher. And it connected with all the things that I'd been interested in uh, throughout my life. You know, it was imaginary. It was story-led. Um, I spent an awful lot of time doing role-play gaming, and that, that this seemed to relate very closely to that. And it was inquiry-based because it was always about you talked earlier about the workshop that, that you saw me teach at um, Northern Rocks. It's about inquiry. That's 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 always about inquiry. It's always asking questions. It asks the, the 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 kinds of questions that are immediately in front of you. So is how what's the best way of, of rescuing this person? How can we do it without putting our own lives at risk? Um, you know what what how long have we got? You know what do we what do we need to know in order to to help him once we release him from underneath the the wood? So there's those questions, but there's also the big philosophical questions I realised, which are about what is it to be the kinds of people that 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 are prepared to to do things for others? What does it mean to serve other people? What does it mean to be you know like I always think of nine eleven. You know, as people were rushing out of the building, there were all these firefighters that were rushing in. What was their motivation? You know, what what kind of people would do something like that? And those are the things that that I found myself talking to the children about. We were doing it in philosophy with children, but we were also started doing it in this other work as well. So I I, I was just lucky, James. I just just got really really lucky, and that was. Um, there were the, it, the, both of those things turned out to be things that I was already very interested in. And I realized at that point that I could bring them into the classroom and learn how to do them. And they could be the context for, for the teaching that I was doing. Mm. And so I know that you um, were introduced to Dorothy Hethcott through, through Luke, but I think it was mainly with Luke that you developed this. And it sounds like you almost had a kind of apprenticeship where you were working with him over a number of years and really sort of pulling this idea of, of mantle apart and imaginative inquiry and figuring out how it works and how it sometimes doesn't work. Yeah, so so when, when I was, this was 1995, I think that was the first year that I started teaching. And um, it wasn't, it wasn't something that was being used in school. Luke had, Luke had, studied with Dorothy Hethcote in the 80s uh, at Newcastle University. And he was a, an advisor at that time, and he was going around working in schools. But nobody really picked it up in schools. And the reason for that was that it was kind of the way that you learned how to do it at that time was a was a kind of the, the kindest way of saying it is was osmosis. You kind of watched someone like Luke, who was a terrifically... Um, skilled practitioner who'd learned how to do it over many years of practice and working with someone like Dorothy Hethcott. And then someone like me had to sort of learn from watching him and then applying it in my classroom. And there wasn't really much of a, um, a structure for this or, a, or a, a vocabulary for it. So one of the things that I did was that I, because I became obsessed with it, was that I would spend an awful lot of time corresponding with Luke this is 
you know, write to him and then we were emailing and you know, I was phoning him and, and they were saying, look, you know, explain to me how I do this and this went wrong and this went right. And over the years, we started to, he, he mentored me and we started to begin to pick this apart and to find a way of explaining this, what was going on, and so that it became more transparent. And uh, in the, as I said, I said earlier about this best practice research scholarship. So I got some money to do this in the, in the, the late 90s. And that, that, that was a big step forward because it meant that I could um, work with Luke and it was funded. And then we, after we had a successful roster inspection in the late 90s and they saw Manka, the expert, and we got some funding from the government through the Innovations Unit. And that allowed us to, Luke and I, to um, design a program where we started teaching other, well, we, we, we got a... Uh, a program where we could work with other teachers to see whether this approach could be taught to other people. So that kind of process that I went through, as well as being a teacher, um, became really um, an important part of my sort of professional professional life, really, and, and has remained so. Yes, I know you're very involved. So you wrote the book about it, and then you you now run um, training programs and residentials for teachers, don't you? Yes. So out of that original um, funded program, we started doing weekends and other training programs at a place called Ringsfield Hall, was a residential place. And over the years, that became somewhere where people from all over the world started coming, and then. Uh, we created the website and then I started publishing all these things that was another kind of thing I think that going back to our conversation around blogging was that that, that around that time or in the 2000s it became much easier to to publish this material that had been around but it tended to be in print form and not really available to the wider audience so I started you know scanning these things or um, copying them out and then putting publishing them and all sorts of other things and writing stuff of my own and then other people started writing things so over that time it developed into a community a community of, of practice where people um, came for training and but also became people that were uh, contributing their own ideas yeah okay so <clears throat> can you try to explain like what mantle of the expert is for people who yeah. aren't familiar with it and I, I don't know whether it would be simplest to sort of um to maybe use a worked example of a sort of as a project and how how you would start it i know that yesterday you talked about the examples i think it was one of the first ones that you did about the normans and a castle in norwich but that was one of your first ones maybe there's another example that you think okay this is a really good way to just introduce people to this idea so that they can grasp it in just a few minutes yeah so it it it's about, as I talked earlier about with the um, Egyptian tomb, it's about creating an imaginary context. So the idea is that there's something that's happening in this imaginary world, and the children in the world can represent different points of view. And one of the points of view, the main one, if you like, is, a point, is the point of view of people who have expertise. Now, there's a paradox in it because it's called mantle of the expert. That's the, the metaphor is mantle of the expert. They're not experts. People 
sometimes, um, well, uh, probably very understandably misunderstand it that, that that somehow we're pretending that the the kids are experts. They're not experts. They don't know any more about about history than they did when you you know introduced the story. You have to teach them about the history. But the mantle bit is to do with responsibility. So the, the one of the very first um, contexts that I developed using this approach, when I was still very, very much at the start of understanding how it worked, was uh, the idea of a castle. So with the, in our uh, topic, which we were, we used to organise things by topics, I was doing castles. Now there's a Norman castle in Norwich, very famous one on a hill, <clears throat> and it was built by um, William Rufus, who was William the Conqueror's son, William II. And I thought, well, what about if I did this as a mantle of the expert? Now, to do it as mantle of the expert, the children have to be inside the fiction as if they're people with expertise. Well, the expertise that I decided for them was people who were building the castle. So they, they, I introduced this idea to them and said, well, I was just wondering what it must have been like for the people that built the castle. I mean, how do you go about building a castle? It's such a big building, isn't it? Do you know that the stone comes all the way from France? So they had this massive problem. Not only did they build, and also the hill that it's on. Do you know that's, that's not even a real hill? They built that as well. I mean, how do you go about doing that? How long did it take, do you suppose? And of course, the kids were like, oh, yeah, that's, that, that's inquiry, isn't it? That's, a, that's immediately, there's an inquiry question there, and they want to find out more. So we started, so I started working with them in this context. Now, that context has three important uh, defining elements. The first is the one that we talked about earlier, which is a responsible team. So if you're the responsible team building a castle for a king at that period in history, the most important responsibility is that it's safe, <laughs> that it works as a castle and keeps people out and that the people who are living in it feel safe. And of course, this is a hostile environment because the Normans have just invaded. There's a rebellion going, up, going on uh, up in the north. And these castles are built to keep the Normans safe and to intimidate the, um, the local people, the, the Anglo-Saxons. And that's, that's the stuff that I want the children to begin to understand so that they learn all the things about that period of history, but they also begin to develop an understanding of that concept, that idea of invasion and subjugation and ruling and power and, and all those other things. So there's their responsibility as the team is to build this castle and make it safe. Now, the second element is the client. That is somebody that they're working for. Well, the client here is this king, William. Now, he's a powerful client, the most powerful you can get. So he's somebody that you have to be careful with. So if you're writing to him, for example, because he, 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 only, he only visits the site very occasionally. Most of the time he's out around the country um, fighting wars or doing other things. So we have to spend a lot. We, we have to tell him what's going on. We write to him. Now, if you're writing to a king, then you have to be careful about the way that you do it. You have to be careful about the language that you use. You have to be careful about your spelling and your punctuation and your, all those other things. And your handwriting has to be legible. So all those things start to become meaningful for the children, as we were talking earlier. You know, they can see the purpose of it and the reason why you want to take care over those things. 
And the third element is the commission. That's the job that we're working on. And the job is building this castle. Now, my job, my, my role as the teacher in this is to organise that and look at the curriculum and say, well, how much of this curriculum can we, can I teach through this context? So I might look at it by subject by subject. So I could think of probably all the different kind of writing. So if you think about writing for, you know, that age group, you've got instruction writing, signs, letters, reports, um, maybe descriptions. Those are, those are five different kinds of writing. Well, I could do all that in the context. Maths. Well, I'll be teaching maths discreetly because we do a maths lesson every day and I'll be teaching you about all the kinds of things that children of that age need to do maths. But I can use and apply it, can't I? Because building a castle involves all kinds of maths. Um, science. Well, there's all kinds of stuff about materials. That would, I could teach all that through this, couldn't I? Do you see what I mean? And then art. Well, the, the king's going to want um, images of what the castle's going to look like when it's built. Or maybe he wants a, a particular image of a particular part of the castle. Uh, maybe he wants a tapestry commission to go on the wall of his bedroom. Perhaps we could perhaps we could design that. So do you see what I mean? It's quite easy once you get the context, and once you get the children engaged in the context, that's the key, then you can start teaching lots of the curriculum through the context. Not all of it. That's a mistake that, that some people make and it's, it's a, again it's a very understandable one because they think that this matter the expert thing is about teaching everything all the time it's really not you, as a teacher you pick and choose so i i never taught i never taught math lessons using math the expert i used and applied maths all the time but i didn't i still i was still teaching discrete math lessons um and the other thing is, the last thing to, to make very clear, is that, that the fiction isn't like a, a fiction where you step into it like a scenario and then you spend all your time imagining that you're... So as the children come into the classroom, you're not standing there going, oh, good, mor good morning uh, to all of you uh, builders. Come in and, uh, and sit down and we'll start talking about today's business. You don't do that. It's not, it's not that kind of thing. It's much, much more like play than it is like a, a kind of simulation. So um, in play, when you watch children play, they come in and out of the play world and they spend time in the play world and then they'll come out of the play world and they'll talk about what's going on in the play world and they'll go back in again. And for them, that moving in and out is a perfectly natural thing to do. For adults, it's much more, um, much more difficult but for, because they think it's much more complicated than it really is. They kind of imagine it's, you know, once you start the drama, if you stop it or tell them it's not real, then it will destroy the magic. But it doesn't. It's... So I'll give you an example. If, um, if we want to talk to the king, so the, king, the king's going to come and visit the castle, the, the building site. That's what, that's, what, that's what we want to. So we're, we're preparing for that visit, which obviously that's a big event because you know, the king's going to come. So we need to be ready to explain to the king all the things about what's going on with the building site. We need to tell him, show him our pictures and get everything ready and talk to him about it. He might ask questions about the um, the laying of the bricks, for example, or the, the, di the dimensions and all kinds of other things. So we need to be ready for that. Now, to do that, sounds like it might, that might take a, a really complicated but it's just simple. So I'm, I'll just say to them, 
I'll tell you what, I, I, for this bit of the for this bit of what we're doing, I'll, I'll be the king. He's like, oh, okay, well, you'd be the king then. So, um, what kind of king are we talking about here? You know, what what do you know about William Rufus? So we have a, that's an inquiry question, isn't it? So they start talking about him, and I say, okay, well, let me see. Let's, let's see how kings sit. How do you suppose William Rufus would sit? Let's all be the king for a bit. And then they all they all kind of give us an idea of, you know, I'm sitting with my back straight and my arms folded, you know, and my, my chin up. You know, so that's, how, that's how a king would sit. Right. Or I might be a king who sits with his legs astride and his hands on his knees. You know, you know, where we start talking about that. Now, where are we? Are we inside the imaginary world? Or are we inside the real world? Well, we're in neither. We're in this twilight where we're creating um, the idea of a king and we're doing it through dialogue. And we're representing, we're all representing the king. There isn't somebody who's you know, being the king and then everybody has to kind of go along with it. And then you say, okay, so are we, are we ready then? Are we, should, we, should, we, should we start? Okay, so I'll, I'll be the king and I'm going to sit like this with my hands on my knees and I've got, I've got a big throne. You can imagine all the, you know, I'm wearing a big fur or something like that and a crown. And you're going to come in as the uh, as the builders, and you're going to tell me um, about how the plans are going. Is that is that all right? So they're like, yeah, okay, we'll do that. Yeah. Okay. So when you come in, uh, how are you going to greet this king? Now, can you see how much time are we actually spending inside the imaginary world? Almost all of it is negotiated. Almost all of it is about deciding and talking, inquiring into what, what that world would be like and what we're going to be doing in that world. And that's, that's the thing, is it's man to the expert, is that uh, stepping in and out of the imaginary world. It's not about simulations and all pretending that we're builders. Yeah. It does sound like I can sort of see why it's going to be so useful it seems like it's a way to to create a context in which for example you're talking about writing a letter to the king and yeah. you know if you start a lesson by saying today children we're going to talk about you know how to write a letter and you know you go you go dear sir or madam at the top and you put your address there and you sort of and it's just about writing a letter it's sort of a, a bit boring but if you're if you're if you're talking about how to write a letter to the king and that they're involved in the thing, it's so, it's, it seems like it's a way to to manufacture. I don't know if manufacture is the right word, but to create intrinsic motivation that they're like they want to write a really like the best letter that they can write because you know they're writing to the king and that that helps to raise their game in terms of the quality of their writing. Is that sort of essentially in terms of like a rationale for this? Um, is that is that close to capturing it? Well, I think I think it comes down to um, what we mean by intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. So, um, why why should the children want to write a letter? Why should they? Why should any of us want to write a letter? You know, it's it, it, I'd only really write a letter if I if there was something in it for me. You know, if I was writing a letter, I mean, I don't write letters anymore, but emails or whatever. But I'd write something if it, if there was some uh, something I was going to get out of it. Um, yeah. So why why should I want to write a letter? What would be you know what would be my motivation? So 
it comes back to what we were saying earlier that it could be an extrinsic motivation well you know you get a sticker or you know you get a nice comment from the teacher or you know writing letters is something that you'll find very helpful when you're uh, at some point in your life um now what matter the expert does is it says to you says to us well let's take that question seriously let's say well what is it that would that would make it that would motivate us now concern being bothered is something that motivates us if you're bothered about something if you're bothered about communicating something clearly and and um making it uh what you're doing is important to you you're invested in it then it it starts making sense you know if we're writing to the to the king now if you just if you just do it as an academic exercise you say oh i wonder what it would be like if we wrote to a king then no, I, I'm, I don't know i'm not bothered in that i understand straight away that's just an exercise that's just like a i'm not invested in it it's just a an activity Whereas if I've invested my time in, in something, as you know, in this project, and I've spent time thinking about it, and we've, we've involved ourselves in this story, then writing to the king and, letting, and, and, and making it um, something to him that communicates what we've done is, is important to me. So writing it in such a way that he'll read it and be able to understand it and he won't be put off by this you know the, the terrible handwriting or the spelling or not writing complete sentences and all that sort of stuff because it's all about communicating meaning then 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 writing a letter becomes something that that seems almost obvious of course that's what we're going to do has there been has there been research done on this? Like, is there is there any way to to sort of point to evidence that that children you know produce better writing when 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 it's sort of contextualised in this way? I don't know. Um, it's matter of the expert is very under researched, very very under researched. There's a uh, an application that's in process at the moment in, from Newcastle University. That's actually actually this week gone off to the funding body, and uh, they're waiting to hear back to see whether that's successful or not. But the kinds of stuff that we're talking about here, I don't think it is very very. It, 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 I've not heard of any research in it, and it's something I think that it need it requires it needs research. It needs looking at. For me, and. For Luke and for Dorothy Heathcote, it's always been about practice. So it's um, you see it working through practice. You you do it with, with children and you see the difference it makes. Yeah, yeah, and and that that's I, I mean I'm I'm not saying that that um, that research evidence is is the only way to judge whether something's good or not. We do loads of things all the time that there's no evidence for. Assemblies are quite weird, aren't they? <laughs> Like what's the what's the evidence for assemblies? We don't really see people, you know, taking to the streets with pitchforks to get rid of assemblies. Um, but it would be interesting to um, to to just find out, you know, what 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 is going on in a mantle classroom and how is it different to other kinds of classrooms? Um, and there, there, 
there is this thing about the language of it. I know you were talking about the problem with the word expert that's often sort of misunderstood, but I was, I'm not really sure about the word mantle either. Like I just I just looked it up, and there's obviously I know the the definition of like you know the big swirling mass of like molten lava that sort of layer beneath the Earth's crust, and then there's two other definitions. One of them is like um, a loose sleeveless co cloak or cape. Um, and the other one is the responsibilities of an important position or job, like the mantle of the presidency, for example. Yeah. I'm assuming that it's sort of that last one, is it? That it's like this, this taking, it's almost like a metaphorical cape that you're sort of putting on these clothes of, and I know that you use the language of imaginative inquiry, and I think that mm. that seems to me to come closer to capturing what it is that you're doing here. Yeah, so the... The name itself was was in, was invented by Dorothy Heathcote, and she was thinking metaphorically. And it, it is problematic because it's one of those names that if you get if you don't know what it means by the name, whereas imaginative inquiry kind of says what it what it is, whereas mantle the expert doesn't really tell you what it is. You have to understand the metaphor in order to appreciate what it means. And it has been a problem in the past. I think it's becoming less of a problem now because I think people, certainly in education, know a bit more about it. But yes, it, it it's um, it's the it's from um, the idea of um, taking on a mantle of responsibility. Now, there's, there was a, in a literal sense, if you think about the way that um, somebody, if you're if you take on an important job, for example, I mean. I, let's say the head of the royal family you know, the head of the state when when they're, they're dressed in uh, in the the appropriate robes and clothes of that position you take somebody who's well if you when you get a, a degree you, you dress in a particular way and it's a sign that you are somebody who has a, uh, achieved a certain position the the thing about the mantle of an expert is that that position has a responsibility that you are by being an expert you are in some way responsible for that um, field of expertise so when you when you become a teacher you take on the mantle of being a teacher you become responsible for the students in your class for their academic progress for their happiness for their um, social well-being uh, for their safety when they're in your care that's your mantle and that's the the mantle of being an expert now in children's life children tend not to in real life have much responsibility their responsibility really is to sort of do what they're told kind of get on and work hard and you know do what adults tell them really um and uh in the fictional world um, they can uh, take on the mantle of being adults with expertise, and it's a way not to get too theoretical about this. But this is this is framing theory. This is Goffman, is that we we frame the world through um, our way that we interact with the world, and through the context that we're in. So, with, for example, uh, I'm a dad. I'm a teacher. A football fan, you know, a friend of whatever, and in different contexts, I'll behave in slightly different ways. Now, it doesn't mean that I'm different; it just means that I'm framing that context in a different way. 
Now, if your context, if the, if the only way that you have to frame the world or the only context you're in is to do as you're told and to be the one who doesn't know, you know, the kind of the idea of the empty vessel and that the teacher is the one who knows and you defer to the teacher as the adult and the most powerful person in the room. And how do you get to practice what it's like to be the one who's responsible, the one who's in charge, the one who's making decisions? How do you get to practice that? Now, in Mantle the Expert, it creates a, a safe space, a safe world for the imaginary world because nobody's going to get hurt. So if we're, for example, um, rescuing um, people that are stuck on the side of a mountain, say a climber or something, You'd never send children up to rescue somebody who's stuck in this because they'd all die and so would the person who's trying to rescue. But in the imaginary world, you can you can do that and they can take on that mantle of expertise and they can, uh, through their imagination, they can um, experience what it's like to be people with responsibility and power. Mm. So... In terms of this framing theory, it, it gives them the opportunity to try, to frame the world in different in different ways, because you can in in through drama, and this imagine, imaginative inquiry, you could take on the point of view of different people, and you can frame the same context in different ways. So, for example, in the looking at the um, the Norman Castle, the the expert frame is the builders. But you can also take the point of view of the Anglo-Saxon people who live in who live in the in Norwich and are watching the castle being built. And you can you could you could say to them, I wonder what it was like for those people. You know, their lives were totally changed by that by that event, 1066, by the Battle of Hastings and these people turning up. And I wonder if I wonder if I wonder how some of them respond. I wondered how how they responded. I guess they responded in different ways. I mean, how would you respond? Would you stand up and fight, even though you knew it was a desperate fight, or would you go along? Would you go and see if you could maybe get a job? Maybe you join them. How would you do it? And then that. Do you see what I mean? It's that it's that being able to experience the world through different points of view. That's that's what this enables. Yes. And it seems to me that it's something that's very clearly linked to history in your work. I don't think it's probably exclusive to no. history. You could look at, for example, you know, the miners who were stuck down the mine in Chile or whatever it might be. Um, current affairs type stuff. It's a way of is I, I I can see the value in it in, on a number of levels, really, from a teacher's perspective, just from a pedagogy perspective, like to go right back to the start, you were struggling to teach this class of year twos and somebody comes in and just in it with a few sentences can create this world that the children and, you know, like, like they know that it's not real. It's like they, they're able to suspend their disbelief and just enter into this thing. And it sort of just makes it makes something more exciting. And I can imagine why it would be more pleasant for, for a young person to be in that classroom. It's something that I would want for my child, for them to be in that world where they're being helped to imagine what it's like. And I imagine as well that it's that it's, um, you know, developing empathy which is one aspect that i think would be really interesting to to research i know that we spoke a little while ago about doing some research around this didn't we it didn't quite come off but i think that um that there's something to be said for developing empathy <laughs> if you you know glance at the world's news media you know on any given day would suggest that we could do with a little bit more help in sort of helping to understand 
one another and what it's like to live in other people's shoes. Well, yeah, again, it comes back to this framing idea. If, if your only experience of school, the only frame that you experience education through is the, the frame of being a student and the teacher being the one who, who is instructing you and looking at their various resources, where, where does empathy fit into that kind of education? Where is the opportunity to look at the world through other points of view? Drama's great at this. Drama's, drama's very powerful at this, um, at creating a, a medium for that kind of education where you can, you can step into to those kinds of worlds very straightforwardly and, and just imagine it. And you're not trying to, you're not, this is the thing, is it like, I, I remember reading a criticism of, of this kind of idea that, um, well, you can't really know what it's like. You can't know what it's like. So let's take let's take the example of the miners that were trapped down the um, the mine in, um, in Chile. They were they were down there for for several weeks, I think, weren't they? And um, and the whole world was was focused on that. And you might say you might say to the children, I wonder what it was like for the families. I wonder what it was like for them, night after night, day after day. What would they do? Now I've never been in that position. I've never, I've never, um, <laughs> anything like something as, as like that. But I can use my imagination, and I can start to imagine what I would do and how I would react in that situation. Now, the more, the more I know about it, the more I know about the, the the circumstances, the more I know about what was happening and and why they were trapped and what people were doing to to bring them out. Um, the more, the more I can. Um, appreciate what might have been going through their minds and then the, and the more I'm interested I am in 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 that and and it becomes I think it's something that human beings do anyway I mean I think people people already put themselves into the shoes of other people but it's not something that we do explicitly in education I mean every time you watch a film or read a book or or go to the, the, the theatre. You, you are you're, you're being framed. You're 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 you know, you're you're seeing this world that's been depicted through another point of view. It's not your point of view, um, and, and, and nobody kind of explains it. But that's that's what's going on. But we don't really use that very much in education. We we tend to sort of ignore that world and don't see it as being part of a, an educational opportunity and that was the thing that Dorothy Heathcote said was that theatre she came from theatre theatre can be used that way of operating can be used in the classroom it can be a very productive form of educational medium mm. okay I've got one more question on Mantle and then we'll move on um, it's, it's a question about scalability and about how, you know, like what, is, what has been your experience of working with these other teachers to help develop these practices? Because sometimes I wonder if I, if I see somebody who's really gifted at creating these sort of alternative worlds and who's very gifted at that kind of inquiry-based practice, um, it seems like it's quite a sophisticated set of skills that's being used. Um, and I wonder to what extent is this scalable? And I, I have no idea about this because, you know, I'm, I'm completely outside it. But what's been your sense from having run these residentials? And I imagine that you stay in touch with teachers 
you know like how many of them stick with it how many of them you know really take it into new places and how many of them sort of try it and go oh actually like i don't know if i can really make this work i think if you'd asked me that question 15 years ago i think i probably would have come up with quite a depressing answer and said that not many that it seemed to be something that people might engage with initially very enthusiastically and then it wouldn't be something that they would stick with for very long. There weren't really very, very many examples of people, teachers or schools that were really kept going. You know, it, it was just something that they, not that they weren't invested in it, I think they were, but it turned out to be more difficult than perhaps they'd imagined or it wasn't quite working in the way that they'd hoped. And there were lots of things that, that needed to be understood. And Luke and I were, were very aware of this. You know, in our early sort of experiments working with teachers, we, we had a high dropout rate. You know, lots of lots of teachers didn't complete the courses or used it for a bit. And then when we got back in touch with them a year or two later, they sort of, if they were honest, they sort of said, "Well, we're not really using it anymore." And that that became quite a frustration for us. And we we did think for a while, I think, that um, that might be. An unsolvable problem that that might be something that, that we just have to accept that perhaps it just wasn't this was only going to be for a very very tiny number of people but i wouldn't say that now i think i think um we, we've become much clearer about what's involved what what's um what can be uh, taught and, and and in what kind of order how th how ideas concepts within mantle the expert can be introduced the fact that I think the book that I wrote, which was a, um, uh, an amalgamation of the work that Luke and I had done over 15 years, has helped a great deal. I think it, you know, not to sort of blow my own trumpet, but it, but it, it I think it, it was, it was needed. It was desperately needed because it meant that people could buy the book. Um, they didn't have to do the courses necessarily, but they, the book was a guide they could go back to and it could help them out. And it's sort of the sort of things that, that we'd found that people struggled with. They had answers that they could find in the book and that could get them over those uh, hurdles. So to answer your question, nowadays, the, the community, if we can call it that, has grown so large that I really don't know vast majority of people that are, they're actually using it then you know occasionally people get in contact with me that i've never heard of. i've never had any contact with them at all and say oh, i've been using mantle the expert and you know i've got i've got this idea what do you think of it or um, you know could you you know um, what do you think of this or you know or, or anything just or you know I'm interested coming on one of your courses or you know i've moved schools recently i've been using mantle for years and, and the head teacher wants me to introduce it to the new school can you help and so i really don't have an answer anymore I, one thing i do know is that it has a life of its own it's it's now out of my hands it's not it's not something you know that i'm entirely responsible for anymore and so has this community this sort of movement if you want to call it that um this um yeah this growing community of practice has that come out of the work that you and Luke have done um, primarily and the book that you've published, or is, are there other people who are sort of banging this drum as well? Yeah, it's not a movement, I don't think. I mean, I, I think it's, 
not to quibble about words or anything, but but it's not it's not it's not got an agenda. I don't. I think movements have an agenda, wouldn't you say? Is that fair? Okay. Yeah. Maybe. I don't, I don't know. I sort of think of of learning to learn as a kind of movement, and maybe learning to learn does have more of an explicit agenda. It's trying to teach kids how to get better at learning stuff. Um, but I don't know. Maybe it's yeah. Maybe it's a bit of a loose word to use. What would you call it? An approach. I think it's an approach. It's it's. I think it's. That's that's the that's the word that I'm most comfortable with anyway. I suppose so. So there's an approach, but then there's, like, it's always been an approach. It's been an approach since before you came across it. But now there's the growing number of people. That's why I refer to it as a movement or a sort of a, an increasingly let's call it an increasingly popular approach. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Has this come from your work primarily, or is it? Is, are there other people who who have you know been leading the charge, as it were? Not leading the charge. Is this is this Nelson thing? I, I want to suck it to the French. I just want to take them all on. Yeah. So this is why this is why I, I I'm so pernickety about these metaphors because it, it, it it's not like that. If you frame it that way, if you frame it as a kind of a um, something where we're all sort of um, flying the flag and taking it on, and it's 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 never been that for me. For me, it's always been much more. Um, I'm just thinking what the word would be. Much more nerdy. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a nerd. You know, it's like it's like saying when when Guy Guy Clax was was writing the the rules to Dungeons and Dragons. You know, was that was that a movement? Did he have some kind of? Was he flying a flag? Was he taking on? You know, the world of um, pre-role play games, and he wasn't. It was just him and a bunch of other people. We're just interested in developing that idea, and that's all it's ever really been for me. In 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 the sense of Mantle the expert is an idea, and it's an approach. And if it if it ends up being something more, then that isn't that that's that's not because that was the intention. It wasn't meant to revolutionise education or transform the way that everybody works. It's not. Really I get that. it, but but what I'm asking is, has this come? This increasing popularity has that come from your work? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I I, I, I can answer that, and uh, honestly, although it does feel a bit, well, again, I'm blowing my own trumpet, but yes, I mean, from Luke more than me, I would say Luke. Luke kept the flame burning, and then I, in collaboration with Luke, so our work together, I would say. It's not really something that exists, or ex it does now, but it didn't exist initially outside of a very small number of people. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's not that's not something to be to be worn lightly. You know, that's quite that's quite some achievement. If you've if you've you know taken this approach and you've shed some light on it and you've developed it over you know 20 25 years is it that you've been working with Luke, and it's now at the point where other people are taking it and running with it, and this increasing popularity has got to the point where you don't even know everybody who's who's um you know in this it seems like you've um you've achieved something quite spectacular there it might, it might feel quite a modest achievement but from from my perspective that seems like it's you know quite something yeah yeah I, again it's it's one of the things that you're kind of i suppose it's like um anything that you work on very closely um 
it's, 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 it's you don't really ever sort of step back and look at it like that you just kind of you're, you're sort of in the moment you know and all the things that we've done are, are things that you know there have been times when we've sort of thought oh this isn't going to work this is gonna you know people won't engage with this or or after a bit it'll just it will lose energy and lose momentum and you know there are, there are various times when that's felt like that and so looking back on it looking at it now and and the size of it i suppose is yeah that's true Let's zoom out now and think about rethinking education more widely. You've been talking about rethinking education in terms of your own practice and also, you know, this 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 um, this approach of mantle of the expert. I want to I want to focus on three sort of areas in this part of the conversation. Really, essentially, there's the first one is positives. Like, what do you see that's happening out there in the education system that you would like to see more of? Because when we talk about rethinking education, I think sometimes there's a tendency to focus on the negatives. And that's important. There's no shortage of problems and challenges that we face. But there's also loads of good stuff. So let's start by pointing at sort of two or three examples of really positive practice that you think is great. And then we'll come on to some of the challenges and the problems that we see. And then we'll finish, if we can, by um, seeing if we can fix those problems. <laughs> and we'll try and be nice and solution focused. Okay, so um, positives, first of all. What do you see out there that you would like to see more of? The thing that always gives me hope in education is people. Is that I think that people who come into education, and I'm talking like the vast number of people, I mean, I don't know what the percentage would be, 99.9% of anybody who becomes a teacher comes in because they, they, they want to be a teacher. They want to work in the world of education. They want to work with, with, you know, with children and, and they want to find the best ways that they can to do the best job that they can. Sometimes we end up doing the wrong things, but I think people always have the right motivations. I think sometimes we, we end up maybe doing things that, that aren't necessarily in children's interests. But I think that that's not done because we're motivated badly. I think it's because we make mistakes. We're human. and Or we, we have a, a partial understanding. I think that's true of all of us. We, we, we don't have a complete understanding of what it is to educate the human mind. And, and we're all working towards that understanding, which we never never be achieved entirely so i think i think that gives me enormous hope and i think that if if it didn't have that hope if it didn't have the hope that things were moving uh, and progressing and that, that there wasn't you know an awful lot of good things happening in education i think i would have left teaching a long long time ago and maybe it comes back to that opportunity that very lucky opportunity that i had that i ended up meeting sue uh, sue eagle and luke abbott and getting the chance to work on things that that stimulated me and, and and made me feel like what i was doing was in line with my values i think it must be very difficult if you this has happened to me a couple of times when i've ended up working in a school which has had a change of head and i've left within you know a few few short weeks actually simply because it was very clear 
from the start that, that they were taking the school in a different direction to me. And I think that, that that's a very hard thing if you're a teacher and you've got a set of, we've all just got a set of values and then the, the, the values of the school are no longer aligned with you. And I think an awful lot of teachers end up leaving the profession because they just become very unhappy. They, they, they feel that it doesn't meet their identity anymore. So coming back to, so in terms of people then, I think that people and a commun the community of practice or communities of practice that exist in education and that they, that they have, I think, it feels to me anyway, and, and that, that those things have grown um, a lot recently over the last 10, 15, 20 years. Can you give me an example of what you mean by communities of uh, communities of practice in education? Well, the, the the mantle of the expert community is the, the example of a community of practice that, that I'm obviously most involved in. Yeah. Um, something like Research Ed, which is you know much much bigger and, and wider ranging um, community of practice, which has uh, a much more diverse base and. Um, and is a movement, I think, has, has, a, has an agenda and, and, and people that are involved in, in, in driving that agenda. But I think it is, it is a grassroots movement. It is not top-down. I think that's the difference that I make between a community of practice and something which comes from above. So I'm not, I'd, I've never seen anything... Uh, I, I'm, I'm now kind of just being careful about what I say because I'm trying to think if there's there are examples of this, but I can't think of anything that's come as a as a, a strategy that's been kind of um, funded and promoted and imposed often by government that's that's ever really been successful. Yeah. It, it is definitely hard to think of examples, um, and one that's often one that's often cited is assessment for learning, which you know is something that that ended up with a sort of a happy ending, if you like, in that you know the recent trials that have been done of, of you know the embedded formative assessment approach have you know found that this this approach you know yields benefits for kids. Um, but when 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 Dylan uh, William and Paul Black published the Inside the Black Box back in I think it was 1998, they ended that with a, with a sort of a call for government to get involved to say this is the best bet that we have for implement for improving young people's educational outcomes. Let's get government backing, and the government did back it with you know lots of fanfare and funding and training programs and so on. And it just sort of, I, I totally agree with you. Something, there's something about top-down implementation that just doesn't work. Even when it's a really good idea, like assessment for learning, the top-down pressure, it sort of turns into an accountability fest and it just sort of, it mutates and becomes something that, that it wasn't when it was at its outset. And that's a massive problem because top-down implementation is our go-to model. Like it's the whole basis of government. It's the whole basis of sort of devolution. Even 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 when you devolve something, you're still devolving it to a lower level of top-down organisation. Um, and even classrooms themselves are sort of quite top-down in the way that they're led by teachers. Um, and I'm not saying that there's no need for leadership. I'm not saying there's no need for teachers or for school leaders or for government ministers. But there are other ways of working. At the moment, I'm really invested in this new this new sort of field of study called implementation science 
which I've been working with schools and it's it's not like bottom up but it's not top down either it's like working with all levels throughout the organization to implement change and it seems to me to be the way to go um, so I totally share with you your your reservations about top down change it's, it seems to just be a bad idea once um, a few years ago I was in Finland to uh, an event like the education event and this in one evening we were invited uh, to a restaurant and all the people that were presenting included went to this restaurant so there were about 50 educators from all over the world it was, a, it was a kind of an international thing and on the agenda for the evening the uh, minister of education was going to um, speak he's going to do a keynote, I suppose, but it wasn't a, a kind of informal thing. So we, we were sat in this restaurant and um, there was a bunch of people, we were talking, you know, the way you do, how, how are you, I'm Tim, and where do you come from, and all the rest of it. And there was a guy who was sitting opposite me, scruffy guy, sort of a bit unshaven, casual clothes and all the rest of it. And I was talking to him for a bit. And um, anyway, so we, we, we had got, got to the end of the, the meal and uh, the, the person who was organising uh, the conference stood up and said, oh, we've got now the um, Minister of Education from Finland who's going to talk to us. And this scruffy guy who'd been sat opposite me stood up. And uh, I was like, well, it's a bit what, not what I'd expected. And he said, he said, the thing that stuck most in my mind was he said, I don't see my job as telling teachers what to do. He said, I see my job as doing what I can to make the the mechanics work as best they can and to keep out of their way when it comes to pedagogy. He said, that's that's a conversation for professionals. That's not a conversation for um, politicians. He said, I'm a, I'm a politician. I'm not a, I'm not a teacher. I'm not involved in that world. I don't know. I wouldn't have a, a voice in that world. And, I, and I, you know, I, and that and, uh, education is one of those things where politicians really feel entitled to have a have a say in in things that they really are not qualified to talk about. And every time they do, they really just sound like idiots. They really sound like they really either either they're sort of pushing an agenda that they know very little about, or they say things that they 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 kind of get themselves like um, recently the the Labour shadow minister for education um, was interviewed by the TS. I don't know if you. Can't remember her name now, but she was interviewed by the TS, and uh, yeah, I saw that. Yeah, and and she just, she just, you know, I think she was probably just speaking sincerely as somebody who, you know, you know, has thought a little bit about teaching, but not very much, and ended up saying which a whole bunch of stuff which really annoyed a certain section of edgy Twitter, um, and I don't think she probably had any any clue that she was doing that. It probably sounded almost. You know, like to her, like an innocent, an innocent thing to say. Yeah, she was saying stuff like, um, "I'm not into facts and knowledge, yeah. wasn't it?" And that I'm yeah. more into like dialogue and and collaboration it's, or some yeah. group work. Yeah. Yeah, and it's like, oh, really? Don't just. Yeah, you're sort of watching it through your fingers, aren't you? Thinking yeah. like they're just making the same mistakes over and over again. But it's not. But the point. But the point thing is that what's it to do with her? It's like it's like some it's like the minister of, edu of, of 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 health saying, "Oh, I'm more into chemotherapy than I'm into radiotherapy, or I'm more into 
you know, I don't know, some kind of thing that I don't know anything about. It's like, it's none of your business. You're a yeah. competition. Make sure the system runs work, that schools are properly funded and that, 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 that you know, all the, all the things that are to do with the way that politicians should be involved in schools. And don't get involved in what goes on in the classroom. You don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, of course. And there's a place for all of this stuff. It's like it's just so depressing when people say, I'm I, I'm against this and I'm for this. And you're like, oh, my goodness, like there's there's good reasons why we want to teach kids knowledge and facts. Oh. And there are also good reasons why we sometimes want to do group work so that they can learn how to get along with one another oh. and interact and develop into personal skills and oracy skills and all that stuff. And, and many of these ideas have a place and they can be used well or badly. And like you say, these are professional matters that are just A, none of your business, but B, it's not binary. Like it's just such a stupid binary position to take. Like, okay, <laughs> just, to, uh, just to take a, a breath, we've clearly sort of slid into the identifying problems in education part of the conversation, which is great, you know, that's fine. Um, so let's let's look at problems. What 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 problems do you see? Is there anything that you've thought about in preparing for this conversation that you think, yeah, actually, I think that we should talk about this. Yeah, honestly, I think that it's all a problem. I think the whole system. If we were starting from here, that's the problem: is that 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 we've got ourselves we've got ourselves a system that is dysfunctional, doesn't work for large numbers of people. And I don't think it even works for society. I think it's a it's a, a malfunctioning. If it was a if it was a car, it would be um, an Austin Princess. You know, it would be it would be look like it was put together by committee and and didn't you know the engine didn't work properly and it needed a new needed an overhaul and it's right. just it, it, it's a car. It kind of you know works, but it doesn't work very well and. So almost the best thing to do is to start from scratch. Well, so so that's a yeah. I can see I can see what you're saying. I recently interviewed Priya Lakani. I don't know if you come across her. She's a she's an ed tech entrepreneur, but she's um, she starts the book by using the analogy of Windows XP, uh, which was you know like really sort of you know snazzy when it came out, and then it quickly became sort of problematic, and they put in loads and loads of patches and patches and patches until it was totally unworkable. And it feels like that's sort of what's happened. It's, I think it's quite a good analogy to use with education. Um, but I sometimes sort of just find it quite problematic when people say we need to scrap the whole thing and start again, <laughs> because that's that's like just such a an impossible thing to achieve. Like, right. what we're we just going to like close all the schools and sort of, you yeah. know, like have a big meeting and all sort of decide on something better. So, so first of all, like when you say it's all the problem, can you can you can you identify like sort of what do you mean by that? Because, for example, the, one of my previous guests, Ian Cunningham, doesn't think that schools should exist at all. He thinks that they overall, on balance, do more damage than they do good and that we should think about different models of learning that are much more localised and much more about self-managed learning rather than being taught by external people, say. And that's a view to take, which is, you know, a very, very strong view. But when you say it's all a problem, are you saying that the whole idea of schools is a problem? Is it the assessment system? Is it the way that we organise into subject disciplines? Like, what are the like? If, can we get a bit granular in this conversation? Yeah, I, I, th I think that what I was going to follow what I was saying was that it, it's an analogy, but it's not a, a very close analogy because unlike XP, you, you can't say right, we're going to scrap that and start again because 
this, the, the whole system is not software. The whole system is is hardware. Very largely, it's you know it's buildings and you know I, I one of the things that that I got very interested in um, at one point in the early two thousands was the idea of um, human scale education. I don't know if you've come across human scale education. Yeah. That it's uh, that you know that 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 secondary schools in particular are just too large. They're, they're physically too large. And obviously, it was the that was very much an experience that I had as a as an eleven year old. You know, going into a school with two thousand people dehumanised everybody. And it was a it was a very largely it wasn't a problem with the people at the school. I, I don't think the problem was very largely to do with the size of it and the scale of it and the fact that you were moving this number of people around every 40 minutes made made things far, far worse than they needed to be. Now, realistically, that's the, that's what we've got. That's where we are. You know, we can't scrap it and start from scratch. We, we have to we have to um, patch it. And, 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 you know, and largely the conversations that we have in education are about you know, even even just like tiny things, like like sometimes we end up having like these little, really tiny conversations about really small micro changes, and um, whether and whether those things really make a difference or not. I think, for me, my feeling about education is that, in terms of what the, the change that a real change that we could make would be to do with the assessment system. I think that we operate within uh, an assessment system which is clearly flawed and has such a profound influence over what of children's experience and teachers experience of of school and education and i know this i know <laughs> i know this is true because i was i was teaching when sats became a big thing in primary schools and I saw, even in a school that I was working in, where we were doing everything in our power to not let those tests affect what was happening in the classroom, it did. It changed what happened in the classroom. It, it changed some of the things that we were doing with children. We started practicing for SATs. We weren't supposed to. We didn't want to. It was... It, it was and still is something that's frowned upon, but we did because you'd be mad not to. And it had an, an had a, had a, you know, again, it's one of these things that I don't, you know, they were introduced for good reasons, and the, and the, and the, and the, the arguments that are made for for having those tests um, are ones that the people who make them sincerely believe. But the unintended consequences, the unintended. Uh, effects that those things have are profound and they make a huge difference to children's experiences at school mm. yeah okay so we've got um human scale education the size of schools we've got the assessment system um is there anything else in the problems column before we move on to thinking about um alternatives well, I think a quality of a quality of opportunity is another thing that exists. That's a that's a, that's a huge problem, and, and not one that has a um, any any simple solutions. But I think that, but for example, if I've got, we've 
Claire and I have got three children, all, all of whom have been through secondary school, and they went to a state secondary school. And we're not, we're not people with money, but we could afford for them to have um, private tuition for the things, for those parts of um, their education that they, that they need a little bit of help with. So for, for two of them it was science, one of them it was maths. And uh, it wasn't hugely expensive, but it was still, you know, it was still a significant amount of money. And the fact that we could provide them with that financial, financially, we could give them that extra support that meant that they could um, pass those exams. They didn't have to resit them, or they didn't feel that they were failing. They 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 were helped with that. It's such an advantage. Now you magnify that advantage across the system. And you find that that there are that the whole system is is, is um, intrinsically um, disorientated and 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 disposed towards those people who have or have a, a, a access to advantages that other people don't have. And I think that, that we need to find a way of, of having a system that doesn't mean that you are so disadvantaged if you don't have access to those kinds of resources. So are you talking about private, private schools here? I think private schools are the most obvious example of this. That, that if, in our education system, right from the moment that it was conceived and built in, in the 19th century, private education was established and was was there right from the beginning so it's now so integrated into our education system that it all i mean people do question it occasionally and when they do there's a there's a big wailing and gnashing of teeth and, and a kind of oh we can't possibly touch it you know it's it's the crown jewels you know and people come from all over the world to have their children educated in this country but it is a it is a really system it is a real symptom of the of the you know the inequality that exists in our education system, and and I think an education system that is much more um, much more equitable wouldn't have private schools. They just wouldn't exist. And I think if you look at countries around the world that don't have those kinds of systems, their educational um, system is far more equitable. Yeah, we can see that, that uh, what was it, The Spirit Level, that book about how, you know, more equal societies are more happy societies. And there is, there is obviously it was a recently, in the last election, it was a, it was a Labour Party policy, wasn't it, that, uh, that they were going to start to dismantle the private school system. Um, and you can sort of see the moral case for it, can't you? Because, you know, a bit like we were talking about the 11 plus earlier, it's kind of like having the 11 plus, but instead of your ability being based on your ability to pass a test, it's just on based on, you know, how wealthy your parents are. And so it does seem that it's that it's sort of unfair that, you know, rich parents can send their kids to schools with amazing facilities and where they're sort of cocooned from life. And I think that it creates a a stratified society clearly you know and I've, I've worked in a number of <clears throat> of private schools not as a teacher but as a, as a consultant um, and you can sort of you can get that sense that you know if you were if you were you know a very small child who's you know some of them look like Downton Abbey or something like they look like these spectacular buildings and you can imagine being in the back of your 
parents you know four by four or something and you're driving through you know some part of london that's all rough right and you're going past places where there's boarded up houses and you see people who are you know having to queue up to get on the bus to go to work in the morning and so on and then you turn around the corner and all of a sudden you're in this leafy gladed and incredible environment it's hard to see how as a young child you wouldn't start to think of yourself as just like sort of almost in a totally different world to other people it really sort of you know you can see how it stratifies society um but the flip side of this and this is something that i've that i have thought about a lot and I, i can't really get to the bottom of it is like although i can sort of see the moral case for saying yes this sort of is wrong and i think that also it's not just that it's wrong but it's that it's like it's um it would be better society would be better if people mixed more as as young people right so that they're sort of rubbing shoulders against people from all different walks of life um the thing that i struggle with with private schools is that like they're amazing <laughs> like they like if you go and visit them and you spend some time in them and you work with those kids and you work with those teachers and you see the facilities like you would like you wouldn't not want that for your kid like like if that if that was the good if that was the local school down the road you would be chuffed to bits that your kid is going to that place and i think that one of the arguments that i've heard used against it is that it would almost be like an act of vandalism is the word that's been used it's obviously an emotive word but it's like if we're going to take something that is amazing and we're going to sort of level the playing field so that everything sort of becomes a bit more average then that's not cool and i can't really get to the bottom of that argument i think that it's quite compelling personally i don't think there's any argument that there some of these private schools are amazing places but then look at the amount of money they get per head of student they flipping well should be amazing places you know it, i don't even know what the fees are what are they three four thousand pound a year oh what no that the what for for the for the highest private schools it's something like 30 i think it's 36,000 pounds a year okay that shows how naive i am <laughs> yeah it's a lot it's a lot of money it's a, a lot more than the national i think the national average income is sort of is it the low 20s so it's like 50 percent higher than the national average income so I, again i don't really know what the current per head of what you get per student i mean back when i was a deputy head it was about two thousand two hundred pounds a year for a, for a primary school student in school yeah i've talked about this with ian cunningham because he's been involved in this i think that now schools are given roughly five or six thousand per pupil right. um at secondary though that might be at secondary yeah it might yeah. be a bit lower at primary right so you know immediately you've got that massive disparity in terms of you know seven times seven times the amount per student so yeah these places should be amazing but they're amazing for a small minority of people and i don't see how i can see the benefit the enormous benefit for those for those children whose parents are, can afford to send them there and how, how many how many prime ministers i know this is in your book i've forgotten how many prime ministers have come from eating um from i think there's 20 from eton there's we've had about 50 odd prime ministers and 30 odd of them have come from three schools right right so you know and it goes back to what you were saying earlier about their what's their experience of life if they've come if they've been in that world that causative world that that world of of privilege and and then how 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 are they 
how are they going to run the country? And and so, you know, okay, all right. So yes, it would be an act of vandalism to, you know, to stop doing that. But that would create a fairer, a more equitable society. But I don't think, I think the problem with the, this is when we get into these things, I sound like an old trot or something. And I'm not, I'm really not that kind of, I'm not into tearing things down and, and not having, you know, I, I think the whole kind of Labour Party thing, like, suddenly, oh, we're going to get rid of private schools. Let's stick that in our manifesto. I mean, that's just not how you go about things. It's not, if, we, if, if it's, if it's going to be something that's going to change, it has to be something, an idea, that is, uh, an argument that's won over time. An argument that says, well, look, you know, we as a society have come to a place now where these things are no longer appropriate. They're no longer, we don't want these places to exist anymore. Yeah. Not, not it, are we going to vote for it and get rid of it? And we haven't really thought about what we're going to put in its place. No, that's, that's just silly stuff. Childish. I, I agree. We're back to the top down thing. And I think that people often don't realize that politics is, a, to a large extent, downstream of culture. You know, if you look at the way that the Tories brought in, like, gay marriage, for example, like, that was not, like, dreamed up in some Tory think tank. That was, like, the the country has already decided that gay marriage should be a thing, and you, we're just sort of just catching up, you know. Um, and so I think that you're right. I mean, in terms of, like, what practically could be done to sort of to... to level the playing field more in terms of educational provision. I mean, I, I don't honestly know much about the legality of it. I remember this coming up on Question Time once and and Dimbleby said something like, it's not even legally possible. I don't know what it is, but it's, it's like, he, he didn't think that it was even technically possible. I'm not sure that that's true because, you know, we we live in a, in a law-based country, right? Like there's no, there's no bill of rights, as it were. We can just pass laws and that becomes a new thing. So I don't see how you couldn't change it by passing a law. I'm not quite sure what he meant there. People talk about, people talk about taking away their charitable status, um, which, um, as I understand it, would make it, quite difficult for them to run. I think that lots of them would close if that happened because actually the margins are pretty slim in, in many of them. And some, some of the most expensive ones are 36 grand a year. Like That's like, you know, um, Rodine and, you know, Eton and all that. But there are many others, you know, there's a whole range of them and it's a sort of sliding scale. My wife works in a private school, but it's very low cost mm. um, and so on. Um, well, again, and again so, see, I, sorry, I, 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 again, I don't, I'm not in favour of abolishing them or, or taking away their charitable status so that they can't effectively operate. I don't, I don't, that isn't, that isn't how this is, this things change. It's, as you say, that politics is downstream of culture. And I was thinking, as you were saying that, that, that when I was at school, it was quite common, I think I mentioned it earlier, that to cane kids. I mean, caning was part of our school. We had a, we had a teacher who had a leather strap that was underneath his underneath his um, jacket, you know, a long leather strap like a belt, and he would whip this out and slam it down on the desk, and uh, and threaten to hit you with it if you didn't, you know, shut up and listen. And that was that was common practice in secondary schools in the 1970s. I don't know what happened to grammar schools, but in the school that I was in, that was common practice. There was teachers with slippers and canes, ball rollers with routinely thrown at people, kids, you know that. That was something that was, it wasn't, you know, that, that was normal. And now, because of, the government didn't get rid of that, 
ahead of the cultural change. The cultural change happened that made those things unacceptable. Now nobody talks about those things as if they're acceptable. They come completely, and that's within my lifetime, they become completely unacceptable. And I think that that's how things change, that, that, that over time, culture and ideas, they become things that people discuss. And I think that general movement, if you're talking about things that I'm optimistic about, is I think that general movement is towards progress. Have you, have you ever come across a book called The Better, An Better Angels of Our Nature? It's by Steven Pinker. Yeah, yeah, I have. It's that, that idea that if you look at things in the, in the short term, it feels like everything's bad and getting worse. But if you look at things over a longer time period, things are generally getting better and heading towards a more fairer, equitable and safer, happier society. Yeah, the arc of the arc of history tilts towards progress is the phrase, isn't right. it? There are there are counter views to that. There's a fascinating book by a guy called John Gray called Straw Dogs. I don't know if mm -hmm. you've come across that, which offers a counter view of of this, you know, this belief in progress. Um, so so essentially, you're saying that that um, it's too soon to get into arguments about charitable status and so on. That we there needs to be, you know, if this is going to to happen, it needs to be something that sort of ferments yeah. and and develops a head of steam yeah. um, within the wider culture. Okay, let's talk uh, briefly. Uh, go on. Sorry, just one more thing about that because is that you when you when you you knew when I bridled at the word movement when you talked about mentally expert, it's because it's the same it's the same idea, is that you don't change things. I don't think from doing this kind of campaigning or, or changing education, you know, saying, oh, we're all gonna we're all gonna start teaching man to the expert. Let's 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 roll this out. Let's let's, you know, go and get set the Ofsted off on, on people who don't do man to the expert lessons. It's it's about seeding things that over time, probably much longer than than I'll be around, that become ideas that 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 that, that you know, are reasonable ideas that people look at and go, yeah, well, those things, those things work. We should be doing those things. And, 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 and that's how change happens. It happens through reasonableness. Yes. Yeah, thank you. So the other two things you mentioned were the assessment system being flawed, and there's already quite a lot of, of, of activity going on around that with um, this, this, uh, this um, sort of coalition of people who've been involved, the rethinking, rethinking assessment. And I was involved in an interesting discussion about that last night and about the extent to which it is solution focused, because these are the questions that we wrestle with when we're talking about rethinking education. We don't want to be too focused on problems. We want to actually look at like what are alternatives. So in terms of the assessment system, there are a number of alternatives that are being looked at currently, and I don't think that we've really got time to explore those at the moment, but it, this is something that's happening more widely. But I'd like to close, if I may, we've got about 10 minutes, with the idea of, of human scale education, because I agree with you that secondary schools in particular and some primary schools are too big, and that that is quite a fundamental structural problem that um, that causes problems then you, you use the word dehumanizing and I think that that's exactly true I talked to you about an example in my interview with Ian um, where it just you know there was an incident that happened and because I didn't know the kid and the kid didn't know me it just sort of all felt a bit out of control and a bit unsafe and and I think that bad things happen when people are dehumanized in that way um, but thinking about the practicalities of it you know if you think about for example just the numbers of people that there are 
and the numbers of um, you know the number of subjects that you have to teach right and so you need to have sort of X numbers of people and to make it economic you know like if you had a sort of a primary if you had a primary school let's say you had a two form entry size to a secondary school you know like would that be economic in the way would you be able to have a sort of a science lab with science specialists and history and drama and music and PE and all of those resources and all of the expertise that you sort that sort of goes into creating a secondary school if you shrunk it down and I know that some people have looked at like a schools within schools approach um, where they've sort of divided the school into little mini schools and that seems to be one idea that, that could have legs but I've not really seen it work that widely in this country I think it's been more more widely practiced in the States have you thought much about this like how can we how can we reduce the scale down so that we make this much sort of much closer to your primary experience and less like your experience at secondary yeah so as I say at one point I got very interested in this and um, read quite widely and, and looked at some of the ideas that were being um, posited. And there were some experiments with the early academies. This was when um, when the academies were originally uh, instigated during the Blair era. And there were some new builds. And they started looking at, um, I can't remember the name, there's, there's a name of a school which I can't remember, but they they took the idea of human scale education and said, well, how can we solve this problem of having the resources that we need for physical education and science and, and those other things, the art department and whatever, while still um, maintaining the idea of a, a human scale? Human scales are, are roughly 140, if I'm, if I'm right. That's the, that's the idea, isn't it, that you have communities are made up of roughly 140 people. Yeah, there's this idea of the Dunbar's number. Who Dunbar was an anthropologist who said that there's roughly about a sort of 150 people is like the maximum number that you yeah. can that you can hold in your mind or that you can have a meaningful relationship with at any one time. Say, right. So if you're in a community of that many people, then you'll recognise their faces. You won't know all their names, but they are people that you are that you can maintain a, a, some kind of human contact or human relationship with. And um, and what what they did with these schools was they they uh, took a big school of 1,500 people and they divided it up into smaller communities so that those children would, would, would get to know the people in their community and would spend time with the same teachers. So as a teacher, you'd work in that. I suppose it's a, 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 a small school, which if you think about it, in private schools have known this for a very long time. That's why they have houses. Houses are smaller communities within a larger school community so that you get to know the people in your house you get to know you you have somebody who you're an adult that you that you form a um a close relationship with who knows you knows your name knows your family knows about you uh, and and that feels to me that's something that that it, it's not beyond human wit to work these things out they're not they're, they're, i don't have the the answers to all these things i don't work in secondary education i haven't spent a huge amount of time thinking about these things in great depth but i know that if we started to have that kind of conversation it was like when i, I heard you talking to deborah kidd um you were talking about different kinds of exams it's like we don't even want to think about these things we don't even want to broach the subject we don't even want to consider they just kind of go oh well you know it's not perfect there's lots of things wrong with it but you know it's the best we've got so we'll just carry on I don't I don't think that's how progress is made. I think progress is made by saying it's not working. 
well, let's look at it. Let's examine it. I don't know what the answer is to this, but I know that that we can work at it. We can look at other examples from around the world and see how they're doing it, and maybe we can get some ideas from there. But we've always, in this country, I've always felt that we're sort of part of the um, the vanguard. I think we've 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 thought about education in, in innovative ways. We we sort of tend to be, I think, a, as a as a profession in this country, people who are looking outwards all the time and try and looking at ideas from other places and trying things out. I think that there are ways of doing these things, and I, and I imagine that technology is going to play a part in it as well. Um, I think we're 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 just of it. I don't know what your other guests who know much more about this have said, but but it feels to me like we're we're just at the cusp of something major that's going to happen in in um, technology. You know that that technology is is starting. You know, as Moore's law is starting to be realised in significant ways, and over the next ten fifteen years, we're going to see major, huge, major advances in. Uh, you know, AI technology and and and, and uh, virtual reality and other things that, that are going to could potentially transform how education, how children experience education. But I, I don't. I, when you start talking about that, you sound like a futurist, you know. And then it's all like uh, could happen, might happen, but don't really know. Well, I, I think it's already happening, you know. And and coronavirus has obviously been a massive catalyst in this but like the world of work has changed massively like i i don't have to I've, I've been basically at home for most of this year and i've been working with schools and it works really well i did i was been delivering uh, mpqsl training to, to teachers that works really well and i don't need to spend five hours on a train going to and from and i think that similarly we can look at you know like what do do we actually need for young people to be going into schools every single day for the same amount of time um, when you know we can we can work this much more efficiently, and I think that there are downsides to to screen time, and I wouldn't want to move to a solely you know distance learning model, but equally um, you know there are many upsides to this, and it's clear that it's already happening, and that it's not gonna it's not gonna stop anytime soon. The technology is getting better and better. You know if 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 COVID had hit five years ago. We wouldn't have had the bandwidth to even probably be able to have this podcast conversation without Skype crashing every five minutes. But now, you know, we can get there. So I think that it is already happening. And I agree with you that, that you know, human scale education is not is not beyond the wit. And there are definitely things that we can do within within very large secondary schools and primary schools to to make this a little bit sort of smaller. And I think that the schools within schools model, you know, is probably the way to go rather than, you know, getting rid of secondary schools altogether and you know just building a load of primary school sized schools i think that we can just work with what we've got sure and you know i did, did some work in in belgium a few times and, and in belgium their system is that the the kind of the children go to school early i don't know what time half, half seven i think and then they have um, a, a particular school and they have this they have a kind of rather formal education and they finish at lunchtime and then in the afternoon they go to often go to another place entirely where they they have a much more kind of vocational um, education in the afternoon so that maybe in the arts or they may be doing mechanics or they may be doing um, you know music or or whatever and those things are, are much more um, that those things are chosen by the students themselves so the morning is a kind of a general a generic kind of education where they, they follow a, a curriculum that's kind of nationwide I think 
but in the afternoon they follow a much more individualistic um, um, vocational route now I'm not suggesting that that's the route that's the way we want to go but it's just looking at things and saying well look this this isn't an inevitability the way that we organize education it doesn't have to be this way perhaps like you say in, in a few years time and it may be not very long a lot of those things or, or some parts of those kind of generic things where we move children around and from one room to the next to teach them kind of things that could be taught better at home you know could be taught in a, in a, in a, I mean, this kind of way of working hasn't, doesn't work terribly well with, with kids. But, but the, the technology is advancing very quickly and we're moving towards perhaps a time when it will be um, both engaging and uh, educational to work for some of the time using a computer. But our three kids are all at university or college or higher education and they're doing all of their learning online. Now, that's not perfect, and there should be, you know, in an ideal world, they should be going to, but they can do quite a lot of it online. And, it, and so maybe school buildings can be used for part of the day, or they're used all day, but by different groups of children going in at different times. Now, there's logistical problems to that. You know, a lot of the reasons why schools are open now isn't really to do with children's education. It's more to do with keeping the economy going so that parents can get back to work. So what do you do with kids if they're at home studying and your parents are the parents are at work? Well, there's a problem. Yes, indeed. Um, and that is a problem that we're going to leave as a <laughs> cliffhanger because um, we need to draw this to a close. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to speak with me this morning. I've really enjoyed talking to you to hearing more about Mantle the Expert in particular. Great. Well, I've really enjoyed it as well. It's been uh, it's really lovely having the opportunity to talk about it. And as you say, the, having the technology that allows us to be able to do it as well has been it's been great. We've known each other for a long time, and this is we've met once or twice, but this is uh, this is this has been great. Yes, indeed, the first of many, I hope. Yeah, <laughs> that would be good.